Welcome back to the Cocktail Cowgirl podcast. We are into episode five. We have ventured out of the raining arena today and into the professional eventing stables at Spring Creek Equine down in the Yarra Valley. Joined by one of the owners here, Sam Chesnick, who has kindly agreed to have a chat with me today. I've known Sam for a number of years. I used to also run a, an equestrian facility down in the Yarra Valley and um, yeah, have watched their operation grow over the years from a, we'll call it a clapped out green indoor with um, not much facility to a massive operation, um, have an elite barn of horses, rehab programs, all kinds of different things. So thanks so much, Sam, for joining me. Pleasure. Am I on? You're on. Look out. I'm excited because my button's pink. Oh. <laughs> We're, uh, yeah, just learning about all of this fancy podcasting gear. It makes me look like I know what I'm doing, but I literally have no idea. Yeah. I've done a lot of YouTube. It's super profesh, I oh, have I to look, say. I look really legit. So, um, Sam, I wanted to talk to you today. This podcast, you started out, I'm involved in the Western horse industry, but I grew up like all of us, pony club, English riding, and... I just think we've got so many phenomenal horse people here in Australia. I didn't want to limit it to just the Western people and you just sprung to mind straight away because uh, when I think of you, I think of, like, grit. Like, I just think... And you might, like, that might not be... When we look at you, you're like this little tiny, petite, beautiful (laughs) blonde lady that likes to drink fancy cocktails. But I've seen you out there on cross-country. I've seen you coaching. I've seen the the hard labour that's gone into building this place where you guys are with your partner, Chris... Um, let's just delve back a little bit into how you got to be where you are now on the brink of, you know, moving internationally to pursue your dream. Where did you start out? I started, um, so I actually have a very non-horsey family. So I grew up in the southeastern suburbs in Melbourne and um, my family didn't ride at all, uh, but they skied. Um, my dad's parents emigrated here to Australia and um, they had skied always growing up in Europe and dad skied competitively. And so um, my grandparents, we were very fortunate, um, had a house at the bottom of Mount Buller that they built for us to all be able to ski as a family. And um, <clears throat> basically the snow in this country is very unreliable. <laughs> and so uh, one year my parents were painting the house um, and it was summer, they were painting the, the holiday house and I was driving mum insane, so she sent me on a two-hour horse ride to get me out of the house and that was it, I was hooked. Um, and so then uh, from there sort of eventually ended up going to riding schools in Melbourne, but I hated the riding schools and I just wanted to ride around the bush and jump logs and ride bareback <laughs> and be feral. Um, and eventually I was like, well, if I want to ride more often, I'm going to have to ride in Melbourne. So I did end up in a riding school for a little while. And then um, when I was... 14, my, with a lot of help from my grandma under the kitchen table, <laughs> I saved up for my first pony and um, managed to convince my parents to get me a, a pony. Um, my parents knew nothing. It was really unsuitable um, and I had that for a couple of years. And then uh, my dad actually worked with a guy, a local guy, who if you're from this area you might know, called Craig McCauley. Um, dad was a doctor and they worked together at Knox Hospital and Craig was the hunt master at Lilydale for a long time. And he gave me a... He was also a race trainer, a country race trainer. And he gave me a racehorse that he had um, raced, retired, been hunting on. And I was this, like, little skinny 16-year-old on this wild thoroughbred with no brakes. And, like, it would jump anything you put in front of it, but it would destroy a show jumping track. Like, it just 
go I once went and did into schools and every wing rail and pot plant was flat when I left like it was terrible um, but I was always the kid at Pony Club that wanted to do more and jump bigger and go faster and on this horse that I did had no brakes on and <laughs> so you know that was kind of my story and my my family were very academic and um that my priority always had to be school and so when I finished school I'd only ever ridden to grade three pony club on really unsuitable horses but I really wanted to do the horse thing and I don't really know where that came from I was very egged on probably by my grandma she she <laughs> was, was she very horsey? supportive no she wasn't really but her dad had horses growing up um mm. that they would use to like as transport yep. um so you know she she liked horses but uh, no but she was always really big on um perfectionism and being very committed and um you know she she was an incredible person in her own right and a big influence on me and I think she saw that I had a passion and she you know and she knew I think I think now as an adult I realize it's unusual for for kids to be that driven and motivated about one thing Mm. and so I think she was supportive for that reason um and then uh yeah so anyway I'd always wanted to go to to Marcus Oldham and so I was allowed to do that and that was the first time I got to really properly pursue horses I guess so I had a year off after school and for the first time ever had had a horse bought for me that had any level of education yep. and I remember being horrified at the time that you know I mean we'd had literally spent maybe $500 on buying a horse before that and mum bought this horse for me that was at the time six grand which now is probably equivalent to 10 that would um, be an expensive horse well it was expensive <laughs> but even now it's still not I still it wasn't an expensive horse like it it was a bit of money but it wasn't wild yeah, you know yeah. um and it, the this horse's claim to fame was like it had been bred by it funnily enough one of the lecturers at marcus and she'd spent a lot of time with rod brown as his working student so it had done a lot of show jumping and i already knew i was very bad at show jumping mm. so i bought it because it was a good show jumper and it was a very good show jumper and i ended up doing my first melbourne three day on it but it would have show jumped a meter five before i got it yeah maybe a meter ten um its dressage was awful like Nowadays, you wouldn't have got a qualifying dressage score on it. You couldn't get it on the bit. It taught me to put a horse on the bit. I was terrible at dressage because I'd ridden in the bush. Um, when I went to Marcus Oldham, uh, my coach in uh, home recommended that I go and have lessons with Gita Donvig, Mary Hannah's daughter. And Gita taught me to do dressage uh, absolutely unquestionably on this horse that was just the most undressage horse ever. Um, and I ended up uh going and doing my first melbourne three day six months after i finished at college so i went from grade three pony club to my first melbourne in 18 months basically and this was all training under uh yeah well i had my year at college and we got lots of different coaches through there and i had the lady that had bred the horse helped me jump it a bit nick rowe at that point was still the course director and like he i think he went to rome um as an eventer so he was a very Mm -hmm. he was an advanced rider in his own right yeah long format um old long format and he um he coached me um and then Gita coached me on the flat and then I kept that going for the six months went to Melbourne and the horse was so much better at Melbourne Gita then approached me and said Clemens Dirks um had had a call that they wanted some riders in Germany and did she know anyone that you know would suit and she said yeah I've got an eventer that can go Mm. and Clemens was like what do you mean you're sending an eventer to a dressage barn she's like no no she'll be fine so she shipped me off to Germany um which was wild that you know 18 months later I was you know offered a role riding overseas what, um, were, you, what were you doing at Marcus Oldham what course were you doing I did the there? horse course and what was that the idea after doing that what was the plan like what were you really supposed have to have one I um 
my only preferences at uni were really high ATAR achieving and I wasn't far off, but I, I didn't make first round offers. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, my first week at college, my dad got diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so that kind of put uni on the back burner for me. I was happy to go to uni, but there was nothing I really wanted to do. And yep. I didn't want to spend four or five years studying something that I then didn't want to do. So Marcus was great because it gave me a selection of different options Mm -hmm. um like it exposed me to all the business management stuff and that was one of the things I wanted to do after school was business and my career counselor at the time said no you won't sit through a business course you'll be bored and I was I'm sad about that because I that was in the end what I went back to do and I I loved the business side of it um and I've had several businesses since then including this one so you know that that was a bit of a shame but it it helped me realise that you can be commercial about horses. You know, all my life I was told you can't work in horses, there's no money in it. No one in my life had was a professional horse person. Yeah. You know, like I had no exposure. Um, and I got into eventing because Dad actually did medical coverage for eventing shows, which, again, this guy Craig got him into. I'm sure your dad was thrilled when you said <laughs> you were going to be an eventer. <laughs> so, actually, he was, he was... I mean, he was an extreme sports person in his own right yeah, as a right. skier, so, you know, he was pretty good about it. But... um. But yeah, so, you know, I, I'd had no exposure to any of that. I'd literally yeah. ridden in the bush and been to a riding school and, and a bit of pony club and that was it. Yeah. So Marcus just exposed me all of a sudden straight to the top of the pile kind of thing. So who was eventing though? Why was it eventing that you went after? Uh, was there someone at yeah, college that you was evented one with? One of the women who taught at the riding school, a lady called Rebecca Kelly, whose daughter now rides and I've seen, I see her around occasionally, um, she was riding. I remember she had a, would have been an advanced horse and I went to watch her at Melbourne three day. Dad was doing the medical coverage. She actually fell off. And um, but I remember seeing it and thinking, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. Like this is I can like remember extreme bush riding. <laughs> yeah, I can remember going to both Wandon and Melbourne three day with Dad and being like, yes, I'm all about this. I've found my thing that I want to do. So and there was never any doubt in my mind, even when I went overseas and I rode. I was so fortunate. Like, I rode Grand Prix horses and mm. had an incredible experience, but there was no question in my mind that I wanted to go eventing. And do you so. think that that time in the dressage stables in Europe, though, do you look back at that now and go, I'm so glad that I oh, did that? It was essential. Like, yeah. I was still terrible. And <laughs> one of the things I think the hardest thing was in, in here, particularly, I'd only ever ridden, like, thoroughbreds, X-race yeah. horses, horses with no mouth, horses with no back. And every day I got on horses that were through. Yeah. They were through to the bridle. They were from behind. They were uphill. They were well-trained from the day they were broken in. And I had no problem with the fact that they were naughty. Yeah. So that was fine. Like, they could put me on anything and that was not a problem. Where, the, you know, even now you go to a dressage barn, they're not known for their bravery. Yeah. Now, admittedly, the horses are strong. Like They're big. Uh, yeah. They're big A horses. naughty dressage horse is the scariest horse you can have. No question. What, what would they be? You know, anywhere from eight, 800 to, like, 1,000 kilos, the big, oh, you know. you know. And then? Yeah. Know, and the girls that are riding them are a normally. A tiny, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, that was – I was so fortunate to have that opportunity and ride those horses. And, you know, like, I mean, I can remember the first day – I was there for a few days and then at lunch one day they said, so do you here to ride or are you here to groom? I said, I'm supposed to be here to ride. Okay, after lunch today you ride. So I came out to ride and they put me on a horse called the Doctor. <laughs> who is this old Grand Prix horse, yeah. you know, who was just amazing. And he was like a beginner Grand Prix horse. There's not many of them anywhere in the world. Like he was pretty special and because they've never seen you on a horse. and yeah. you know. So they put me on the Doctor and they sent me out to ride and um, there's a guy there from New Zealand called Kiwi. I actually still don't know his name. Anyway, he was a lovely guy. I ran out on the barns. And they put me with one of the German baratas to have this lesson on the doctor. So I ride around and I 
get it in a frame and I trot and I sit and that's all okay and I canter and then he says right come around ride a flying change never ridden a flying change made that up <laughs> this yeah, horse yeah. is pretty amazing I mean I'm pretty amazed that only did one change and it didn't go straight into sequentials to give it its dues <laughs> so I do my one change that's all fine and I think he'd done I'd done shoulder in and Trevair that was all all right and then he said now I come and ride a pirouette and I stopped and he said why have you stopped and I said well I've never ridden a pirouette what do you mean you've never ridden a pirouette I said well I'm an inventor we don't do pirouettes this what do you mean you're an inventor? This is a dressage barn. I said, yeah, I know. I'm here to make my dressage better. He's like, this is ridiculous. He looks at Kiwi's training in the, the arena next door and he says to Kiwi, Kiwi, and then he says to him in German, I need your help, this silly girl. And they didn't know. My German was not too bad. <laughs> you knew what they were saying. <laughs> never let them know that. And um, he said, this silly girl, she's an inventor and she's never done a pirouette and I can't in English tell her how. So Kiwi says, you know, come round, put it in Travers on the circle then take the shoulder round, you know, so I come round. And, of course, the doctor comes round, gets on the three-quarter line, turns, gets to the centre line. I ask him for Trevair and he goes, yeah, yeah, pirouette. And just does right. his pirouette. Well, I was supposed to do half a pirouette and I just got stuck. And it, this thing just keeps going and Andreas is yelling at me, he, no more, he's old, stop, don't keep going around. And I can't get out of him. thinking, what am I going to do? And in the end, I just went full Australian. I dropped the reins and kicked it. <laughs> oh, my God. And off I went across the arena and, and Andrea says, you know, for a first time, that was pretty good. He's like, okay, maybe this will be okay, this eventer. And after that, I rode and, you know, every day I would ride between five and seven horses and mostly warming them up for riders. But two or three, we would ride their whole ride and always with help, never, ever on your own. Um, always a combination of young horse, young horses through to Grand Prix horses and, um, I think the amazing thing about those environments is, you know, if you're not very good at the changes, no one sits you down and tells you how they say, ah, oh, tomorrow you ride a leper, he's really good at changes. So they just and put they you on you. one who's better and the horses teach you. Isn't that such a different um, approach? You know, such a different approach to what we see here. Here yeah. it's very much a sink or swim. Yep. Uh, you know, talking to some other friends of mine that are horse trainers that have gone and, and tried to work for really great trainers here in Australia, whether it's in the English or the Western. And I must say the, the Western side of things here is probably a lot worse for it. Um, mm where it is exactly that like you come you know you want to watch and work it out if you don't get it right I'm probably not going to share my secrets with you it's very mm. there's a few really good people but there's a lot of really tough people to mm. work for so it's you know when you look at what goes on in Europe it's no surprise that they're pumping out elite level riders mm. you know there's so many fantastic young riders coming through because they're getting that you know it might be a Foundation. little bit different we might be different now you know when you mm. were there a few years it's ago but um, yeah, they're getting that foundation, like, but they're putting the foundation into their horse that mm. they're putting into their rider that is in turn teaching those riders to become better trainers and mm. continue the circle. And mm. that's really, you know, I'm sure you'd look at that now. And, like just hearing that, I'm like, oh, what an amazing experience. Mm. So that you can see that though with your horses and, and I'm not an eventer and I'm not in the scene, but you can look at horses, especially eventers, the ones that have got it, that dressage foundation. And it's just... Mm you know it is a little bit chalk and cheese you see the ones that they can get around and they can jump mm. and you look at them on the flat and you're like oh that looks painful <laughs> you know it doesn't look smooth it doesn't look balanced like i said they're not through they're not mm. you know using their back correctly and and they're you know got veins pumping out of their arm hanging off their face mm. your horses don't look like that mm. your horses you can see that foundation that you've put into them and um yeah that's a credit mm. to what you guys are doing here yeah and i think i was so lucky to have that time and also i realize now looking back and having taught a lot more young riders now, I've always been very fortunate that I've had good timing and good feeling. Mm. And I think that's 
that did come. I was very resentful for a long time that my foundation wasn't better educated mm -hmm. because there was riders at Pony Club that were always surpassing me because I couldn't get my horse to put its head down or really do anything I told it. And but they were they were they might be scared, but I never realised that my confidence was an asset mm. and my ability to still make the horses do what I wanted them to do and things like keep them in balance across country and control speed and control power and steer to the middle of a fence and yeah. things like that. Um, and react when they go to stop or react when they go to bolt that foundation actually is so important and it enabled me to progress so quickly once I had the right horses and the right help mm. um, and I see it in our working students you know the work the concept of a working student I mean we could do a whole podcast on that mm. but like my own students very rarely get to sit on my horses and yeah. if they do they've usually been with me a year or maybe two years and they've spent some holidays and they've put yeah. in some hard yards and they, they're really committed yeah the girls that come as working students that's part of the opportunity is that they don't just come and have their lesson once a week they come and they learn the whole thing they learn barn management horse management they learn to work when they're tired mm. they learn to work when it's cold they learn to work when it's hot <laughs> they learn to work when the weather is amazing and the going is beautiful and the horses are behaving you know you you get the whole range yeah. and further to that they get those opportunities to ride those horses in the off season and and have some a little bit of what i got which mm. is you know you, you you've got your off the track thoroughbred and you're struggling to get it to come through you've never ridden a horse that's through here get on the three star horse this one is really has a great mouth it's really good at being through that will teach you that yeah. get on this one this one will teach you changes you know yeah. like that is the advantage of being in that role you that, and the things that you don't get just being a student yeah um and that was where you know i think i think that's really essential and i think that is that concept is really lost on people and i think if people really want to be dedicated you guys offer the working pupil mm. positions but there's sort of two options if people really want to be good in my mm. mind either you've got to sacrifice a year two three mm. four of your life working for you know when we don't not in it to become millionaires but you've got mm. to sacrifice some of your time and your money and, mm. and to to really learn everything about it because it is a 24 7 job or you've got to spend a bunch of money and take a hell of a lot of lessons like there's mm. you know people kind of want that even when you take a lot of lessons though, like, yeah, you can take a lot of lessons, but you've still got to like, like put it this way. We have students who come for lessons and we'll still convince them or we still encourage them if they're going to do say their first Melbourne three day the following year. And that's their plan. You need to come to Melbourne three day and groom for us this year. Mm. You need to see what it's about. You need to see how you manage the horses, how much we walk them, how much we ice them, how we get through trot up, yeah. you know, how we manage them in the, the few days leading up to you're there for days before you do anything. Like yeah. all of that stuff, how we keep them happy. Like, so even if you're just a student, it's never going to be enough to just be a student. Yeah. You, you, it is if you only want to do it recreationally and have a great time. But if you want to do this at any kind of an elite level yeah. or you want to make it your life, you can't half do it. Yeah. You can't do anything in this world at a high level really well and only have one foot in the door. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's earning money, if it's becoming a billionaire, if it's being an athlete in your own right, if it's... Whatever it is, whatever yeah. it is you want to be good at, if you want to be truly good at something, you have to be all in. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's something I think that since we've had this place has really come home to me because I got to a point where I, I was as all in as I could possibly be, but my life did not allow me because I, I've been self-funded my whole career. My life that I was leading didn't allow me to be in enough. And yeah. that was why in the end I was like, I didn't really want to be a professional rider but in this country, uh, you 
it's almost impossible to ride at elite level and not be a professional because yeah, you, it, the, we don't have the resources, we don't have the setup, and further to that, you have to hone your craft and hone your skill, and you cannot do that riding one horse a day. No, it's and event, and eventing is one of those things. You your horses have got to be fit and yep. keep kept at an elite level, but as a rider. Like, you physically need to be to go out and run a four-star course. Mm. Like, I look at that and I'm terrified. But, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of conditioning in your body mm. and mentally as well mm. to get out there and, and come home safe. So, mm. like you said, it's not a thing that you can go, oh, yeah, I've had a busy week this week, but I'll just pop down to Melbourne and, mm. and run my horse around the two-star yeah. and, and everything will be fine. It just doesn't, like you so said, you've got to be I had in. two in, um, we just finished building this place. I think and I had two horses at Melbourne and I had a six-year-old in the two-star class who I had bought unbroken and produced myself and I had an older horse who I'd bought my only schoolmaster ever that I invested in for myself mm-hmm. and he just maybe done the three-star no he'd done the two-star as well and I had been getting up at 5am to do my corporate job and do my work and then coming home and Chris was getting up in the morning to groom for me and it's middle of winter obviously um, getting up in the morning to help put the second horse away for me so that I could get on a train to go to work to do my job to come back that night to then mm-hmm. muck out stables, make up feeds for the next day, get organised. And that had been my life for the six months leading up to Melbourne. Yeah. And um, I was catatonic at prize giving. Like both the horses finished, but I was catatonic. And I was like going to the gym at lunch twice a week um, to make sure I was fit enough because mm. obviously I'm not doing the hours in the saddle that I need. Yeah. And there's a picture of me at prize giving and I'm like grey. Like I was done, absolutely spent, and I'd had to use my annual leave to go to Melbourne and literally the next day I was back in the office on a train at 7.30 in the morning kind of thing. And I just got to the end and I was like, you know, if I want to do this next year and do the three-star, I cannot do what I'm doing and safely get around the three-star. Like I'm going to be dead on my horse. Like it's not going to be safe. And it was at that point that I went, okay, I really want to do this at an elite level and I can't do it the way I'm doing it. Yeah. And, And that was so I came to professional riding really late in my career. Yeah. Um, and, but do I regret the time I spent out of horses going to uni, starting my own business? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, because it's enabled me to ride and be smarter about it. Yeah. And, and do what we're doing now. Yeah. So we'll go back to that. We've, we skipped ahead we'll a, bit, rewind a little bit. No, no, that's okay. That's amazing. So you're in Europe, you rode at the dressage barn and then you had some really amazing opportunities mm. um, and got to experience some, you know, phenomenal um, events watching some top-class riders. Mm. Just run me through that time. Yeah, look, I think – I look back at it now. I think I used all my horse riding luck up on that trip and that was <laughs> it for the rest of my career. So I had this great opportunity in Germany and um, then a friend of mine was um, grooming for Clayton Fredericks at that point and was his head groom and um, – I really wanted to um, go to the WEG. In, so I was in Germany and the WEG was in Aachen, not far from a couple, few hours from where I was. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to go to Aachen. And, you know, the best way to go to those shows is to be a groom yep. or to be in back of house. Get all the cool Yeah, cool see, it, see it properly, yep. not, you know. And um, she said to me, oh, um, I've got a friend. He's a Brazilian rider. He's based in England. He needs a groom. He's got a problem. He hasn't got a groom for the WEG. Do you want the job? Absolutely. Paid to go to the WEG. Love it. Good. Had never... I cannot believe I did this now. I'd never groomed at an elite show. I'd obviously done a long format by that point myself, so yeah. I knew what was in, t- you know, it entailed, and yeah. I could plait a horse and all of that. But I'd never groomed at that level. I'd never ridden at that level. My exposure to that level was relatively limited. Um, I had her there, thank God, yeah. because she mentored me the whole week, which was just unbelievable. Yeah. And um, 
So, I, so because luckily Australia starts with A and Brazil starts with B, actually he was stable like oh, right, right next, next door. <laughs> because if we'd been in Uruguay, that could have been yeah. a problem. He'd have been away away from each other. So, um, yeah, so, and anyway, in the meantime, his horse finished and very, very well and it actually put on weight while it was there, which was hilarious because it wasn't very well managed at home. It was very well managed at the event. Um, and uh, the Australian team won silver that year. So that was amazing to be with those guys while they won a silver medal at the WEG. And, you know, I've got incredible photos of the team and of the horses and getting them ready for um, for presentation. You know, there's a big... Um, at that point, you know, if you're the drop score, you didn't show jump. and so. But it was very superstitious to plat the horse that was part of the team that wasn't jumping before you'd got your medal. So you did plat it? So well, we had to plat it in about 10 minutes to get it into the ring for prize giving, yep. you know. So oh, there's yep. like four of the best grooms in the world platting this horse up. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, things like that. So, so that was amazing. And then um, I then went on to England from there and um, my plan was to catch groom for Wendy Schaefer at Burley and we went um, and the horse unfortunately didn't, didn't trot I can't remember I think it had something like a stone bruise or the horse went on to be very very successful so when he showed it was like my hero as a child yeah. just saying like well, it was very cool was, yeah you know. totally my childhood eventing hero <laughs> and I think what was so great was I'd had this experience at the WEG and so then I walked into England and went oh, I've groomed at a WEG and they went great perfect she knows what she's doing <laughs> I mean whether I really did well, it was kind of like that time when you did the lead change flying lead change when you pretended like you knew what you're doing just, just, wing it. just make it up you yeah. know fake it till you make it yeah. so um yeah, so I went to the WEG with Wendy and uh, – sorry, to Burley with Wendy and the horse didn't trot. And so I was there anyway and my, my groomy friend was there too, still too. And they had three horses, so I helped them for the week because mm -hmm. the horse I had all it had to do was have its box marked out and go for a walk each day. So just for anyone that's listening mm. that doesn't know when you say it didn't trot, so it didn't pass a trot up. It didn't fit past the yeah, trot so before yeah. the – I don't think we even presented it. Yeah. Um, right. Like it obviously Something going got on there, there and yeah. pulled a shoe and yeah. was too lame to bother presenting. And, yeah. and it, it – I think there were other shows to take it to, so yeah. you know they were like, "We'll save it for another day." Yeah. Um, so anyway, and then Lucinda won Burley, who's Clayton's wife. Yeah. Um, and so again, I was sort of things like I was able to camp with them. Like I, I, I literally had a tent and a sleeping bag. Like, <laughs> you know, people go in these fancy trucks, and like that wasn't my experience. Yeah. Um, so I had my tent and my sleeping bag, and I caught the train to the how, show. How old were you when you were doing all this? Uh, 20, tw uh, 21, 22? Yeah. Twenty-two. So, um, yeah, caught the train, turned up with my tent and my sleeping bag. Where's my horse? Off we go. You know, so Clayton and Cinder were amazing at um, sort of allowing me, to, I guess, to be part of their camp. And then, you know, obviously I, I helped as much as I could and then Lucinda won. And so then to watch someone win Burley is just an incredible experience. Like the horse wins a cake. Like it's the coolest thing. I've got these pictures of like the things you win. Anyway. This cake made of like sugar cubes and carrots in a half horseshoe shape, and oh, that's just for the horse. Like, yeah, really cool. Things. How experience being part, like, you know, I know you came in as a catch groom, mm. but being part of that team, like environment, when you have such a big win like that, like oh. it's just there's nothing else like it. Whatever. It's amazing discipline. when you watch it on the TV, let oh. alone to actually be there and know those people and that watching are doing that it. horse down and you know yeah. looking after it and, and being amongst it. And it's you know, she was a good example of a tricky elite horse. Like she'd missed the run. They didn't put her on the team at the WEG because they said the horse couldn't make time. And two weeks later, it went and won Burley. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Shove up your ass. joke was on them <laughs> yeah. at that point. And the horse was tricky. She'd ended up with it because it was incredibly head shy. It had some fungal condition in its ears. And you had to undo its bridle to get on and off. In the finish box, it was really challenging because 
you know, like only its groom was allowed to handle its head and we were all there cooling the horse, but we had to be really careful about how close we got to its head and where we put water mm. and what we did and, you know, things like that. Clayton had another one at that time that was very difficult to get back from the finish box. These shows in Europe, things are miles away. Like mm. here we're so spoiled. The finish is right there. The stable's around the corner. You know, you get driven to the start box because it's so far away. Mm. You've then got to get your horse back. And, you know, you'd think after 11 minutes of galloping, you'd be tired. Well, you see a crowd... <laughs> and you've been cooled down and you're awake you're again. back on so yeah. you know there's two of us being dragged back to the stables trying to keep this horse in its laneway and stop it getting out into the crowd like mm -hmm. at the wig i walked a horse back through a small country town like it, it's insane you like it, it's yeah. so different so you know i was so fortunate to have those experiences and go yeah this is what i want to do mm. but i knew i needed to fund it and i decided i was i rode a lot of horses in germany and i rode great horses but i didn't want to ride it was, it was a bit boring. And now I think it was probably because it was a dressage barn. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I definitely want to ride at five star or four star then. But I need more in my life. And yeah. I don't have a fallback. You know, like I didn't have um, financial fallback. So I needed to be self-funded. Yeah. And so I came home and um, uh, bought, uh, yeah, came home and um, and decided, okay, like I think I need to go to, you know, I need to do the adult go to thing. uni and do the adult thing and yep. stop riding, which I did, and that lasted two years. So you actually gave away months. riding yeah, completely. Yeah, the horse I came home to that I'd done Melbourne on unfortunately developed string halt while I was away. And mm. anyway, so, you know, his career was sort of over and he did eventually come back to eventing, but I rehomed him to someone and they did a very long rehab with him and eventually got him back to a certain level. Yeah. Um, and then, but so once I didn't have him, I was like, well, I'm kind of without a horse. Mm. I know I've got to go do something. And I came up with this plan that I was going to, um, you know, have a business where I could work and ride my horses and run my own time. Yeah. And so I did that. I went to uni and I um, did a business degree and I worked in HR at the same time. I did a business with a major in HR. And then after about 18 months, I was climbing the walls, not having a horse. Mm -hmm. So I went and bought myself a horse. Um, what did you buy? Well, <laughs> it's a funny horse. I bought the best bred eventer in the country and it was the most useless horse I've ever had. Bless him. <laughs> he was out of a four-star horse that Boyd Martin had had. Mm -hmm. So he had a mare called Brady Bunch and she did a tendon. And while she was out with a tendon, this was long before embryos, he thought I'll have a foal out of her while she's having a year off with a tendon. I mean, we don't give them a year off with a tendon anymore and mm. you don't put five-star horses in foal anymore, really. <laughs> so he was a bit of an anomaly and he was by Brilliant Invader. So he was a family tired Brilliant Invader horse yep. for anyone who's into their thoroughbred eventing breeding. So he was absolutely bred in the black. He was about... Uh, he was 15-3 in front and 16 hands behind. Oh, good. <laughs> he was downhill. He had a short neck. He could not trot. Canter was functional but not great. Jumped okay. But, like, I mean, this thing should have been super talented at everything yeah. and it was absolutely hopeless. It's the only horse I've ever flipped cross-country because it was that useless. Yeah, right. Um, and, yeah, so anyway, so I had him for a while and when I started going out with Chris, I still had him. And, unfortunately, I bought him as a young horse. Maybe he was five as an eight-year-old, he got colic and he'd never had colic. Anyway, it's a very long story. In the end, he had stomach cancer and unfortunately, oh, we had, I had to have him put down and I'd spent all my money on him. So I had no money. And Was um, he an expensive horse too? It was 15 grand, yeah, that's, which at that point was, you know, a lot. was a bit of money. I mean, he was very well-bred. Yeah, on paper, he should have been. <laughs> yeah, that you know, was cheap. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, now I know why. <laughs> anyway, and um, but he was good. He got me back into riding and he got me back competing and, you know, yeah. so there was all of that. And then um, in the meantime, I'd, my grandmother had always wanted to buy me a horse and I'd never let her and I finally let her buy me a horse because I really needed a horse. <laughs> so for 10 grand, I bought a young horse. Um, I decided when I got back from Europe that I wasn't going to ride thoroughbreds again. Yep. So I've now come full circle. I was going to say, it seems like that. I hear a lot of ventures, they go down the warm blood, like purpose mm. bread, and then they just come back to the thoroughbreds because it's... There's well, something about them. There is something about them. And, you know, there's a reason why there's been so many at the top. So mm. so I bought this warm blood. She was 50% thoroughbred. We would not know. Mm. Um, and she was a super, super good horse, but she... Um, and I took her she qualified for the four-year-old young horse classes she was one of the top qualifying dressage in the dressage horses I bought her as a three-year-old um and had her broken in and then brought her home and anyway and I just maybe I just started seeing Chris at that point so this must be 12 13 years ago now (laughs) I reckon we've lost count um and um anyway so I took her to went to take her to the four-year-old young horse and she put her leg through the fence and missed her missed her year so horses. then, oh, I love horses. so good, right? So then I thought that's all right. I'll do the five-year-old next year. Mm-hmm. So I did. She qualified. It was the five, not the six. She qualified for the five-year-old, and then um, I got there. And by that point, I had um, done something for my riding that had never been an option for me before, which was that I bought myself a schoolmaster. Mm-hmm. And I mean, schoolmasters are the biggest lie of horses in the whole world. <laughs> like. They don't they set you up to believe that they're all going to be like this. And, well, but also school. No, the concept of a schoolmaster is a lie. They just they don't exist like mm. people think they do. That they just don't operate like that. Yeah. They're schoolmasters because they school you. Yeah. Like they teach you a lot, but yeah. they're not. It doesn't mean they're easy. Yeah. And this guy was not easy. So, but it was an amazing horse, and he had been ridden by nearly every professional in the country. But he'd had a lot of soundness problems, yeah. and I was. I've always. You know, I've been always been very good from a vet perspective at management and that's always been a big strength for me and my marks in those areas were very good at college and maybe I should have gone and done science instead of business, but, you know. Um, so I bought this also. I thought, no, I can manage him. And he was very difficult on the flat, very mm. difficult. Like, you know, um, Shane and Stuart had both had a go at him and struggled with him on the flat, but he also, equally he went to England with Stuart and was on a oh, long really? list for a team. So he, he was an extremely good horse. Was this chestnut? No, no uh, a horse called Ari Digua here. Yeah, he wasn't chestnut? No, he wasn't like big a brown, big brown, long-legged, very long, like a big HB pencil. Yeah, right. Um, we used to call him Oppie Pa because he was old by the time <laughs> I got him. Um, anyway, and he, he taught me how cross-country should be. But, I mean, he carted me around my first few shows. It was comical because I took him right back to the 105 or pre-novice and the last show we worked out he'd done was a four long or a four short or something at SIAC. And he came out of the box to do this 105 like we were at the Olympics. And I was like, dude, I'm going to trot around this. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got to the bottom of a hill and I thought, I'll let him go up the hill and be tired at the top. That Mm. horse was never tired a day in its life. Like it got to the top of the hill and I was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. We haven't slowed down and again. I can't stop. <laughs> anyway, so um, he taught me so much and he was an incredible show jumping horse and luckily I'd had this great dressage foundation by that point and so I did manage to get a test out of him but even that he taught me a lot. He taught me to ride a hot horse. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually much better at riding lazy horses. I'm very good at getting them in front of the leg. I've got quite a hot seat but some of my best horses have been hot, basically yeah. hot thoroughbreds um, and I think... If you're going to be a professional, you have to be able to do both. You're allowed a preference, yeah. but you must be able to do you need both. To have the skills to and because sometimes they go from hot to 
not. Mm-hmm. Like my current mare's a great example of that. When she's off season, she's lazy, really lazy. And once she's fit, she's hot. Mm. And there's like Jekyll and Hyde. Well, you've got to have that skill set, don't you, to, yeah. to, to adjust to whatever yeah. they're... And it's like us, you know, some days you're on, some days you're not. And it's, um, yeah, that that having that background with those, you know, being in Europe, a bit of everything, growing up, who rang out the bush, mm. you know what I mean? Like you've sort of had that exposure to lots of different horses. So it's, yeah, no surprise that you've been mm. able to adapt to that. So let's just roll back here a smidge. So you've Horse come back death. from Europe. No, oh, this is amazing. I love it. We haven't introduced the love of your life <laughs> oh, i suppose i have to call him that now do i well i guess you're in too deep you can't get out now soppy ah uh, yeah i know you two are probably like the least soppy couple i've ever met in my life like i feel like yeah like when i said like gr- you're gritty he's like grittier i think you're like the perfect pair so chris your partner I'm just thinking yellowstone now if only <laughs> Exactly. We're not as gritty as that. Not, not quite. No, no one's gone to the. None of the working students are going to the train station. No. <laughs> so, um, you and Chris have been together for thirteen. Yeah, years. something like that. So, and what you guys have established here, and you, you're both under forty. You know, mm. like it's not like you guys are sixty and you've been doing this. You know, like you, what I feel you guys sixty. <laughs> I know emotionally, <laughs> um, but you guys have built up a massive business here together, mm. and it's. Um, working with your significant other can pose a lot of challenges. So we'll come back to that. But just, like, how did you guys meet? Obviously through horses, I'm mm. going to assume. But, um, you know, what how, what sort of sparked your relationship yeah. and what, what made you guys actually go, yeah, let's do this together? Because I guarantee if I said to my partner, like, and, and he's in the horses, but if I said, like, hey, let's be horse trainers together, it'd be like, all right, we'll just book our divorce in for six months. Or yeah, <laughs> what, what made all this sort of come about? Yeah, so we met eventing um, and we'd known each other through just being at shows and in the same social circles for quite a long time. And he, um, I never really liked him. <laughs> was he a bit cold or what was uh, it? No, he's a bit of a goon, really. <laughs> a like, goon? Yeah, you know, I had like, you know... I was very fortunate. I had very like cool, hot boyfriends for most of my twenties. Is he not cool and really cool and hot? Give me his juice. I think you're cool, Chris. I actually think he's better looking as an older man than he was as a young man. But anyway, I'm sure people would disagree. And um, and I mean, Chris is a very intense, serious, focused person, and I wasn't. That wasn't my story at that point. And um, anyway, but but we always got on great. We, you know, went to barbecues together and yeah. did a lift to the pub and, you know, yeah. just the normal kind of being at show stuff. And um, then he had wor- he worked for Andrew McLean, um, Andrew Manuela at ABC. Mm-hmm. That was Chris's foundation. So his story is a bit more traditional than mine, I suppose. Um, very much went down the working student path. Yeah. I will say, though, did a science degree at the same time as being a working student. Took six years to do a science degree because he did part-time uni while being a working student. So serving him well now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because we, we <laughs> have a very big joke about how we're the most qualified professional horse riders in the country. I think you are. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, his, like me, his family were determined that he have a, um, a, uh, a an education, but a fallback plan. I still don't know what he's going to do with his science degrees, his fallback plan. What does so, that even mean? Like what science, or when they well, say, people say they do science. What's he going to do? Go work in research? I mean, yeah, did animal yeah. science. He could go work at the zoo maybe. Yeah. Be similar, similar to working, but, you know. Yeah. Um, bandicoots, I yeah. don't know. So he, um, so yeah, so so that was sort of his story. And then what happened was, then I worked with him at one point briefly at AEBC. Mm-hmm. When I got back from Europe, I did some office work for them. I used and to I, go to camps there when I was well, a kid. It was a, that like was, a lot of people. 
I must say, as a kid growing up, we'd go to Pony... I went to Pony Club for years and years and years, and I went to that place, and I swear to God, I learnt more in five days being there <laughs> than I did going to Pony Club for five years. But you come home and your horses go amazing for a week, and then you'd just be back doing the same stuff. But um, that was really... I really enjoyed going there as a kid. And, proper, uh, proper horse... Um, horse training foundation. That that was that was probably the first, and it's funny you say that because I actually used to have some lessons with Chris mm. years ago, and he was probably the first English riding mm. trainer that actually that I remember actually teaching me to train the horse. It wasn't just, <laughs> you know, shorten your reins, kick harder. It was, yeah, it was actual. Okay, like your horse when you're stopping, he's he's falling on the forehand. Like we do do do, do all these things, and no one had ever explained it like that mm. before, and the small amount of lessons that I had with him, it actually reminded me of what I learned at, AAB, at EUBC mm. as a kid. It was just this different training technique that I look at now and I'm like, that's how everyone should learn. But it just wasn't the norm <laughs> It's here. not, unfortunately. It's not, no. Yeah. It's like, like get on the off-the-track thoroughbred, yang it out the bush, like kick it in the guts, yee-haw, let's ride it. Where you go. You know, at Pony Club for mm. three lessons a day, once a month. It's a funny thing. Like, we often reminisce about this and, like, I didn't have... One thing we see more and more is that the riders that are coming through into like working student positions or coming through for lessons, horsemanship is this area that like if you'd said to me, if you'd started wanted me to talk about horsemanship eight or nine years ago, I would have been like, oh, horsemanship. <laughs> and right. I would have been like, oh, you know, flick your rope around and, you know. But actually we've come full circle and it's no, it's nothing to do. It's not that, it's not natural horsemanship. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where things have gone a bit awry. There's nothing that natural labels, right? No, there's not. Or what we do with yeah. horses. But um, horsemanship to us is like, I can't teach it. And mm. what I mean by that is I can teach you to train a horse. I can't teach you to read their body language. Yeah. I can't teach you to care about their behavior and take a step towards improving it. Mm-hmm. I can't, um, it's it's something innate that you have to figure out and like I learned it by like you know my girlfriend and I we were little we were like 13 and we'd want to ride we'd want to go riding that day and the only horses we had to ride were the trail riding horses so they were on 100 acres and they used to run across three different mobs and we all knew I knew the pecking order of all the mobs Mm -hmm. I knew who hung out where in the paddock I knew who the boss of the mob was Mm -hmm. I knew if I caught one horse and I took it away, the horse I wanted would follow and then I'd be able to catch the horse I wanted. Or I'd know, oh, it's 10 a.m. If I go down the bottom of the paddock, those four will be in the bottom of that paddock and her and I will be able to corral them into the corner. Mm -hmm. And then you have to corral the buggers in, in 100 acres. You get the body language wrong in 100 acres, it's a long walk back up the hill to go get them. So, like, you... I learnt to read body language Mm. and I learnt to handle horses and I learnt to understand pack behaviour and... You know, Chris came from a bit more of a scientific background with his training theories, but and then I had cowboys teaching me how to train. The horses were never allowed to get away with walking all over you, not being bridled, not being saddled, mm. dragging you around. You know, that was just totally unacceptable. Yeah. And so while I didn't learn like Chris did, where you know halt, rein back, know that you know reward the behaviour, I did learn how you handle a horse yeah. and how to not be bossed around by a horse from enormous cowboys. And I was this tiny little flea of a thing. Do you remember and which trail running place they it would was? Say, it meant, don't boss, don't let that horse boss you around. It must have been hilarious. Which, which to place watch. did you yeah, learn at? Of course at? I remember. Uh, Mount View Safaris. Uh, oh. so I learnt from um, from Bo Purcell <laughs> and a guy called a friend of his called Evan Euston. Yeah. I actually went to Evan's funeral a few weeks ago, which oh. was sad. It was on the Friday before Mansfield Horse Trials, so it was like f- come full circle. And I was so glad that I was able to go. 
And I looked at all these old cowboys, full Yellowstone, mm. and I'm like, yep, that's why I have horsemanship. And it is, and you guys combine that. Like, yeah. Like, he's, he's sort of, and he's, he's very, um, he's like the academic of the horse world. Like, he's mm. very... Methodical. Very much so. And you bring, you know, that your own sort of element into this business. I think that's probably why you guys mm. work quite well. So so he he did the AABC it's thing. Got to be to bring you back to tracks. <laughs> that's okay. That's yeah. what I'm here he for. He did the AABC. He did the AABC thing, thing and, and then, then... Yeah, and then we both had a very good friend, a mutual friend in Catherine Davies, mm-hmm. who funnily enough bred my, my now four-star horse. And, you know, she's a recurring theme in our relationship which is kind of weird through no real intention of her own yeah so chris is a five-star horse he trained with her a lot um a horse called black or park d'artagnan years ago um and she's now a very good dressage judge and as i say bred this horse but we were, both went to her 30th birthday mm-hmm. and got very drunk <laughs> <laughs> and actually didn't hook up at the time but it kind of you know made us both think oh maybe we'd like to spend some more time together and um it was his birthday chris's birthday 10 days later and i thought i'll call him for his birthday like i had his number you know it's like back in the day when you'd call them not send them like well, a snapchat you know, or a text yeah, message or, i probably yeah. could have sent him a text but nothing oh, that's good i was like, like i'll call, call him, him. And he was, I didn't know at the time, but he was away skiing with his mates. And mm-hmm. so, of course, you know, it was a bit awkward to answer the phone. And I just thought he was trying to get me off the phone. And I was like, oh, I've, I've got a bung steer here. <laughs> anyway, so um, a week later he rang and said, do you want to go out for dinner? And, yeah, so, you know, so we'd known each other a long time. And yeah. it took a long time to be like, oh, you know, both probably in the right place at the right time. And, yeah. And it sort of went from there. So, yeah. And then, um, I mean, I had my own business going and my horses were in Mornington and Amanda Ross's place. And Chris worked from his parents place in Wonga Park and um had his own business there pardon me and that was going really well and then um I'd always wanted to have a property that was always part of my plan because my horses have been on adjustment all my life so my plan was I would have a property and basically the property would be a business set up to run my horses and I would go off to work every day yeah and um it would allow me to have the resources and the infrastructure I wanted for my own horses but in a way that could pay for itself yeah so that I didn't have all this infrastructure sitting there costing me a lot of money just Mm. for me to use on my one horse um and I was ready to start doing that and I turned around to Chris and said look I'm at a point where now like I want to buy a business I'm paying adjustment I'm paying rent like mm. this is wild I need a house and somewhere to keep my horses yeah. and I want to amalgamate my life and um and he was at the point where he'd really outgrown his parents place in Wonga Park and so we sort of the logical decision was let's have a property together was Chris, he training horses out yeah of his he was already place? training horses yeah. Yeah. yeah right doing a lot of braking he doesn't do as much braking yeah. now but doing a lot of braking and training horses and, and doing all of that so mm-hmm. Um, so it was logical that, you know, I was always going to need someone to manage this property that I had in my mind and mm-hmm. here was this guy ready-made, you know. So we were like, great, we'll start a property. And yeah. the idea was that I would keep going to work every day, you know. and Keep him in the lifestyle he's become accustomed like to. Something like that, you yeah. know. Someone would pay the mortgage <laughs> yeah. and um, he would train horses and he would in turn look after my horses, you know, to the way which they needed to be. Because being on adjustment, I'd found that incredibly difficult to have horses on adjustment and manage them to an elite level. Mm-hmm. You know, people turn them out of the stables in the morning and not realise they're missing a shoe. Yeah. And then I get there at 8pm to ride them and they're missing a shoe. And now it's been a whole day. I could have called a farrier. I can't yeah. be there for the farrier. Like, it, yeah. you know, it's diabolical. And I will say Europe are much better at that than us. You can genuinely be an amateur and ride four-star because they're much better set up for it. But in this country, you are not taken seriously unless you're a professional. And I think we need to do some work on that. But yeah. It's getting better um, and it's been a big ethos for us in this business. But, yeah, so, I, you know, I had this guy ready made and then over the period of sort of making that choice, choosing a property, setting that all up, 
I came to this conclusion that I couldn't actually keep working like I was working and ride to the level I wanted. Mm. And so I, I then moved into this business to become a professional sort of overnight. I did keep going with some other work for quite a while. Yeah. And I always say to the working students, like one of the things we, we want them to do is learn to hustle. You yeah. have to hustle in this business. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I was still hustling. I was still doing some contract work. I, that's how I met you. I was teaching at TAFE. Oh, yeah, the Box so, Hill Institute. Yeah, yeah. so um, we both taught at Box Hill together and um, I was still doing that. And I'd done that while I was in corporate, you know, balanced that at the same time because it was yeah. something I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, I hustled for a while and I had a good um, cohort of students in Mornington that I lost all my writing students moving my business. So having to start again and having people realise that I'm a writer in my own right, not just Chris's girlfriend, yeah. that's very tricky in this sport. And I think there is a bit of a skew towards the guys kind of being the main writer and the, the women just following them around a bit. Mm -hmm. So it's taken us a long time to forge our own professions we own each. identity each, yeah. Yeah, that's Being quite challenging. Um, uh, and, and now we can leverage off that, but, you know, that was a bit of a struggle for a while there. And then this went on and I have... Um, we talked about it briefly, Steph, but I actually have an autoimmune disease that became apparent earlier in my career and it's it, it means I struggle to ride a lot of horses every day. So I can ride six. Six is okay. More yeah. than that gets tricky. I like four. Four yeah. is really good for me. Maybe five. Um if I have to, but um, I can't ride a lot of horses and it became apparent to me that, you know, for our business I was going to need to put in more than that. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing about Australia, you have to do everything in this country. You can't, the industry is not big enough to specialise in one area. You can't just be an elite coach. Well, There's only in every discipline though, I don't think you can be... No like pigeonhole yourself into no. that one thing because there's not enough customers to keep you in work in that one, that want that specific thing. You can yeah. specialise in that, mm. but it's... Yeah, like we talked about the horses that you've got here today. And you're like, oh, I've got, you know, mainly Aventus, but I've got this and I've got that and I've mm. got this thing. And, and I've like, had your Western horses through. Yeah, we put our horses here on the, on the water walker. Like and it, it's not, you can't do one thing. So, you know, I started doing some rehab work because I'd always done that. I'd actually through all this worked with vets quite a lot as well and mm -hmm. had my own series of lame horses and rehabs myself. And anyway, and, um, and I had a very strong clinical background through all of that. And so I started just doing rehab, you know, come if you need advertising it. We've got yeah. these boxes. If you need bandages changed, we can do yeah, that, you know. And we got a bit of work through it, but it wasn't a, wasn't a big earner. And then I went to – I'd used a water treadmill in Germany when I was there years and years ago. I never really thought anything of it. I think at the time, you know, it was just part of what the horses did. And I'd never even put a horse on a walker. So, mm. you know, like I was like, oh, okay, they have <laughs> infrastructure. Like this is a thing. But, you know um, – and then I went to Poe in France to watch the Five Star with my mum and they had this ridiculous facility um, that they were advertising and it was like a horse spa. Um, yeah, it was like a trailer you walk them in, is it like that? No, no, this was a, this was a property oh. that you send your horse to for rehab. Oh. But it wasn't just rehab, like they sort of advertised that if your horse needed a holiday, it could come and just like go in, come to like a day spa. And I'm not joking, it was like... This incredible, like, sandstone building. Yeah. And it had, you know, always unclassical music playing to keep the horses calm. And they had a water treadmill and also a spa. So they would go in the, the standing spa or the water treadmill each day. And they would do seaweed mud packs on them. And, like, it was right. wild. I'd never seen anything like it. I was like, this is insane. I'm going to look this up. Well, it's <laughs> close down. I want to see. I was going to say. Enough, I wondered if it was actually a uh, sustainable business at model. At 700 euro a week with a maximum of four horses capacity, 
funnily enough, didn't oh, do I very can't well. Imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh, oh, here he comes. Here he comes. Oh, oh no, here comes dog. the dog. I think it's just the dog, actually. Um, hi, dog. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Okay. So, um, yeah, so it was this crazy facility, and I, I looked at it and thought, oh, this is, like, really cool, and but I can't, I like, this is not, <laughs> not going to fly. But I thought, you know what? There's elements need, to it that, yeah, that could work. I thought we need a water treadmill. Mm. And we looked at buying a dry treadmill. There's a lot of dry treadmills at that point in our area, um, we didn't think it was enough of a difference. We didn't see a big need for us. I'm not mm. a fan of galloping horses on treadmills for fitness. I do it when I have to, but it's yeah. not. I don't. I don't believe in it as a permanent thing. And we were taking our horses to the beach. Like we were driving to Mornington to take our horses to the beach to do wet, wet fitness work mm. with them. And it was worth doing because the impacts that we got were unbelievable. Yeah. But equally, we were being pummeled by waves, chased by dogs, yelled at by tourists. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was just a nightmare. So I um, came home to Chris and I said, we're buying a water treadmill. And he admitted when we installed the day we installed it that he thought I was joking and it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I feel like it. I, how did he ever underestimate you? So we put uh, this water treadmill in, and it um, and it was the final kind of feather in our cap, I think, and it's been perfect for mm. us, not just for the business, but for our own horses. Yeah. Um, for anyone that's the water treadmill, I've actually sent our reining horses down here to utilise it, and the difference in the horses coming back. They were only here for two weeks, but it was we were going away, and we wanted to get them back into work. We wanted them to be ready by the time we came home, and they came back not only exceptionally well cared for, but just the, the the strength across their back was probably the most noticeable thing. But for anyone that doesn't maybe understand what we're talking about, it's kind of like a like a box mm. essentially that it's they a box go with in. A belt in it. It's yeah. a box with a belt in it, like a, a normal treadmill that you'd go on at the gym. But your one um, locks in, and you can put water, let the the water level rise up and down. You can incline the. I can yeah. Yep. Yep. So there's a lot of different options there that you can really beneficial for rehab mm. um fitness work just you know general, strength. general strengthening but like probably low impact like as opposed mm. to galloping them mm. you know you do that for what, what sort of sessions they go in there for like half an hour yeah my the 20 minutes 20 is probably minutes. the longest that yeah. it takes them half an hour at least in the unit but the actual we get them to the set depth and then we start the timer so yeah yes yeah. yeah so it's um a, a more specialised version of... The beach. Yeah, the beach. Or even, you know, you, I've worked at places before mm. that had what I call like an aqua walker, which is a walker essentially mm. underwater. But, you know, what you can do here with yours is the, the water levels you can change, mm. whereas the, the ones that are just, it is what it is. And mm. we, we, I remember we used to have racehorses. I worked at a pre-trainers and you'd have one come through and he'd be lucky to be 14-1 and he'd be pedalling away and then the <laughs> one that's 17-2 and he's like barely... Over, yeah, around. so that... For what you guys have got so much more specialised and you can really tailor it to the horse, which I think is what you, your, your whole centre here is such a... Each horse is sort of treated as an mm. individual and you've got the option to do that with the different facilities that uh, mm. and, and options that you provide. So it's a really, you know, it's amazing. You you, you were looking at it out the paddock, out the window here before, and if, if you can hear the um, sound in the background, it's raining. I can hear it in my in my earphones, but... It's very wet here at the moment. Your paddocks are looking a little bit oh. sorry for themselves. But for me walking in here, every time I've been here, you know, there's always something new. You've always done something. Like I looked at your garden down there before and I was like, I know you're probably looking at it like, oh, whatever, but I'm like, I, I remember when that was like a dirt patch out there and now you've got this beautiful flourishing garden. And um, it's, it's really amazing to see how much effort you guys have put into building this business and it takes a lot out of you though doing mm. this sort of thing emotionally physically mentally so 
have you, how long have you been running Spring Creek yeah, for Yeah, so now? what did we decide? Because we think 20, took us 16, a bit of figuring. 2016. I reckon 2016. Yeah. So, you know, you guys now are at a point where you're, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. You're very established. You know, you've got plenty of horses. What are you, is it 16, 17 horses in work at the moment? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. And like, we're pretty, we're a bit quiet, so yeah. yeah. And like that's a lot though, like really in the mm. scheme of things, that's still a lot of horses to mm. have in work to look after. I think we've got that in ridden work and twenty four with the treadmill. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot of horses. It's, in your a, care. it's plenty of horses. And your property's on the market at the moment, though, mm. right? So you're having a full restructure, and we'll, we'll call it a, not a restructure. Yeah. You're a redirection, mm. I guess. What? Where where are you wanting to go, and what has sparked this to yeah. be to be the next step in your story? Both of us always wanted to ride overseas, and for me, when I decided I didn't want to be a professional, my goal, my whole career has been I want to have a horse that's good enough to put on a plane and go and do a five star in another country. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that dream's been a little bit upscaled by Chris, and now I seem to be doing it on multiple horses. Why <laughs> take one when you could take sure five? About how I, ended up. I often look around and think. This wasn't really the plan. Anyway, I'm in over my head now. So, um, yeah, so we'd always wanted, Chris had always wanted to go overseas. He's probably got, he's always been a bit more competitively aspirational than me. And um, we just got to a point where we've been here for a long time. Everything's becoming a bit repetitive. Mm -hmm. There are challenges with this, with our industry in our country that are quite frustrating and also, I think we're now a little bit at a point where we're big fish in a little pond. Yeah. And things like it starts to get hard to get better. Yeah. We're going to get better, maybe 3 or 4% better a year staying here. Yeah. We want to get 25, 30% better. Yeah. And if we're going to do that in the time allowed that our bodies are going to allow us to have being older athletes now, yeah. we need to put some pressure on ourselves. Yeah. And take that next step and do the next thing and also have an opportunity to focus on horse sport. And not be pulled in so many different directions. And in this country, that's a very hard thing to achieve. You've got to be a jack of all to you make it You have to do everything. Yeah. You've got to hustle all yeah. the time. And, you know, you still have to hustle. Like, I love telling the working students this story. When Tim and Janelle Price moved to England, Janelle started a catering business to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Like, now you look at them, they're at Teddington. They've got a team of five-star horses. I mean, they're unstoppable. But that's like, what you've got to do. Sometimes but that's you've got what to do. You've got to do. And they went there with five-star horses. Yeah. They didn't go there as nobodies. So how's your cooking skills? Are yeah, you like ready I'm, I'm to pretty good cook. cook. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got you know, to fall back. Like you've got to hustle. Like, yeah. you just got to do whatever you need to do to make money. Mm-hmm. Like, if that means that you have to go and work the horses all day and go and get a job as a checkout chick in the afternoons, fine. That's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we try and instill that in the working students too. Like, yeah, you're here. You're on a basic salary the reason that you're on a basic salary is because if you actually sat down and went well my horse is fed fully cared for it's shod i go to shows it costs me nothing in fuel that's getting to be an even bigger thing with mm. the fuel cost of fuel i'm getting umpteen lessons a week i'm getting opportunities to ride horses i'm getting i'm learning they're learning without even realizing what they're learning mm-hmm. and yeah you could go and oh, you're getting money in your pocket and that's, you're getting some money yeah that's but our, our girls do not Work, like they work 8 till 5, 5.30. Mm-hmm. If they're still here at 6 o'clock, it's because we've had a really big day. This yeah. morning we took eight horses cross-country schooling. They started at 7.30. We all started at 7.30. Yeah. So their day was a bit bigger. It's not like They'll still be they're done. Not up, they're not out there at 4. Exactly. Yeah. They'll stu- and the reason we do it is so that they can go and hustle. Yeah. You can go and teach a lesson after work. You can ride a second horse if you want to sell mm. one and make some money. If you want to take a job at the pub, yeah. th- they have an opportunity 
to do more. We yeah. both hustled so much. I was at uni. I was full-time at uni. I had a horse in full work. I worked three days a week in the CBD and I taught in a riding school on Saturdays. Like, that's I hustled. Got to get it. You know? Yeah. That's what makes Make you gritty. But, it, but uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier with... Um, and it's across every discipline. And the change in, I guess, the younger generation coming through, and I'm not in any way, like I know some of the most wicked kids, and I'm sure mm. you do too, and there's plenty of people. I don't think it's a generational thing necessarily. <sighs> yeah, no, but it's um, it, it, like social media, I think we were mm. talking about, has had a really big impact on the, um, I guess, the like the legitimacy of people's mm. um, skills. Mm. Like, you know, it's really easy to put a video together and it makes you look pretty cool. And like I'm guilty of it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put that on the internet. I'm going to put the bit looks good. But, you know, these younger riders or not even younger, like these Mm. semi-professionals, I Mm. guess, selling their their skills and and just changing, you know, I guess the the process that you go through to get to where, you know, you guys are at, it's being lost a little bit. People looking for that sort of instant gratification. Mm. You know, these young riders are wanting, you know, they're getting put on these Mm. $70,000, $80,000 horses that are trained and then the wheels are falling off because they're not, learning that you know like you or i did as kids where mm. we just wanted to do anything we could go out there and stare at the herd of horses and mm. work out how the hell i'm going to catch one and ride it back <laughs> but it's you know that's you just and it's a little bit not their fault like it's insurance has become such mm. a big issue and there's not riding schools like when we were kids mm. when i was a kid it was like righto like let's get the ponies from Achuca sales and round them up and we'll ride them and hope for the best and you'd go and ride bareback and you'd swim in the dam and you do all these things that i just don't think that Unless kids are growing up on a farm, mm. they've got the opportunity to do that. Like city kids like myself, I grew up in Melbourne as well. Mm. Like there's just nowhere to learn like that anymore. But um, you guys probably deal with a lot of, of junior riders coming through. And, mm. and in the area that you're in, and I don't mean this disrespectfully because I love the Yarra Valley, but it's like a wealthy area. People don't live here. Like, sounds bad. Poor people don't live in the Yarra Valley. <laughs> I'm sure there probably is. But in terms of like the horse area, we were talking about before you... You know, you had to toss up between living in the peninsula or the Yarra Valley. Like, gee, first world problems, Sam. How hard's your life? And the Yarra Valley is where you got stuck. But oh. you, you deal with a lot of um, people that have got, you know, probably high expectations yeah. of, of, you know, themselves or, or their children or whatnot. How – and I, I, you guys are, are, like, so straight down the line. I just don't <laughs> think that you would even um, – fantasise with the idea that like oh yeah we'll just fluff it up a bit and, and tell them that they're good when they're not like how have you you know as mm. where you're at now in your business how have you managed to sort of navigate that path because I know you know 10 mm. years ago you might not mm. have been like that and now you're very straight down the line yeah about, I think yeah. eventing you know it's funny I think 10 years ago definitely we all can be guilty of being jealous of others mm-hmm. and I think over the years like I've had some real experiences that have brought home to me that you can't do this or be successful without working really hard so oh she'll probably hate this but I'm going to use a friend of mine as an example so a girl called Cassie Lowe who's now Cassie Palm and the other half of Rob Palm um, I can remember watching her many years ago and she was around the corner from me actually in Lindhurst and we were quite good friends and at that point we would see each other a lot because we were local to each other and Cass has had some amazing horses and a lot of amazing opportunities and it had a beautiful property in Carrum at that point she works so hard like 
she's one of the hardest working people I know. Mm. And I remember looking at her and if you looked at her on the outside looking in, you could think, oh God, she's just so lucky. She's had great horses. Mate, she works for every inch of it. Like her parents are um, uh, uh, um, farmers, like they grow lettuce. And, you know, she was expected to get up and go to the, go to the market every morning and take, take the produce in and do all that and have a full job working on the farm and Mm. then go and ride her horses. And yes, okay, her horses were funded and paid for and probably I'm sure that that financial output for what her horses cost far exceeded what she would have earned going to the market. But it wasn't the point. You know, she still had to get up, contribute to the family business and Mm. earn some dollars. And then then when you've done your work for the day, you can go ride your horses. And okay, over time, she's become a professional in her own right and, you know, and all of that and had those opportunities. But, you know, she's somebody who could very easily from the outside looking in think, oh, well, you know, it's easy for her. It's not easy for anybody. I've also watched her fall off, get bolted on, get trampled, you know, like smack her head on the back of the horse trailer and miss a three-day qualifier because she was in such a hurry getting out the back of the trailer, she slipped over and cracked her head open. You know, like... Yeah, like, she's human. <laughs> she's human, you know, like yeah. we all have to work so hard. So I think that... Um, and equally, when you have someone, you know, a young upstart, if you will, come along, <laughs> even now I can sometimes look at them and think, oh, geez, you're lucky you've got a big opportunity or you're a bit of a brat and you don't know how good you've got it. Mm. And it used to bother me and now... I just sit back and I think, oh, I can't wait. How's this going to go? Just let it run its course. Let it run its course because yeah. I can promise you if mm. you stay in this for long enough, every single one of them will will fail in some capacity. And the really good ones end up being your best friend because mm. you watch them fail and you watch them think they're all eaten a bit and it's usually because they've got a really good horse and they'll go and they'll have an incredible season and blitz it and win everything and the next season they'll come out and they'll upgrade too quickly. They'll overface their horse. They won't have done the fitness work. They won't be managing it well enough. And before you know it, they're at the bottom of the pile with everybody else and they've got to start <laughs> again. Oh, yeah. The, and it's the exactly. ultimate level of a sport. Yeah. The ultimate level. Of, like It's, it's you, humbling. It's, it's so very humbling, humbling sport. And it does not matter how much money you have, mm. you will end up at the bottom of the pile at some point because horses. Like, yep. And now I just look at those people and it doesn't even, I don't even worry about it. I'm like... Can't wait to see what's going to happen to them. Yeah. And in three years' time, I can go from watching somebody and hearing a lot of maybe smack being talked about them, and I try very hard not to engage in that. And three years later, you've got this. If they're committed and they keep working, you've got this really humble person who can ride a horse and take mm-hmm. the take the blows, you know, and, and has had to go back to those people and yep. eat their words and apologize and eat humble pie and realize that maybe the horse was carrying them and they aren't as good as they thought they were mm-hmm. and have a bit of a reality check so nowadays i sort of don't worry about and i don't worry about telling them where to go that's such a good way of looking at it and you're so right i've never thought about it like that but you know those ones that are really dedicated that and and like we were talking about before like if your parents like if i had kids and i could facilitate Mm. to put them on a nice horse like hell yeah i'm gonna put them on a nice horse hell yeah i'm gonna like take them for the lessons and do the things like why wouldn't you want your child to have those opportunities and those really dedicated kids, though, like I guess when they, you know, they get to 18, 19, 20 and they sort of, you know, spread their mm. wings and get away from home and, you know, like do it themselves, you either see the really dedicated ones that, yeah, like they think they're going to be, you know, it in a bit mm. straight off the bat and have all the horses in training and, you know, they might have one good one, but like you said, it'll it'll all come full circle or you see them and they, they give it away. They're mm. not dedicated they enough. Can't, or and they can't, yeah, they're not resilient enough. Exactly. And yeah. that and that just sort of deciphers out the... It's a long game. Yeah. This sport is a really long game. And all you have to do is look at the average age of our Olympic athletes to tell you it's a long game. 
oh, the, what are the... It's like the, I look at the, I look at the, the, but the guys in the Olympic team, like the Olymp- who's who's like short. <laughs> this year it's going to be about sixty. Yeah, we're I know that's what I mean. It's like the same. It's like the same bunch of guys. Like, yeah. like, I remember when I was a kid, I've got a VHS of like the Atlanta Olympics, and I think it was like Andrew Hoy and. <laughs> Like, it was the same guys yeah, that are in it now. I'm now, like, that, that may be a question about our high-performance development <laughs> programs, but there's another podcast for you. But, yeah, yeah look, I, I, absolutely. And um, and the problem with it is it takes so long to get good at, and by the time you're good at it, you're like, oh, finally just started to work this out. And now my body's letting it. <laughs> and now I better keep going, yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, well now, you know, now I want to keep going yeah, because yeah, I finally yeah, got sure. it right and it's taken me so long to get to well, this point. I feel like eventing, you know, I... I used to like when I was a kid. Same as you, like I'd love gassing around paddocks and jumping logs, and you know, like I thought, thought I was pretty good. wasn't very good, but I love jumping and I love cross country. Now I look at it and it makes me want to throw up in my mouth. <laughs> like I literally look at it and think you guys are mental because it's just I just can't understand why you would want to run that fast at such solid obstacles. But in the same time, I have such respect for the connection that you have with those horses and the ability to to be going at a gallop towards something and be able to read and feel that mm. horse's stride so you know like to the, it is and it's just such like you said and I, I'm a true believer like you can't teach feel mm. you can help someone develop it but I can't explain feel to you it's something you've got to learn mm. and you know looking at those um you know at Adelaide I, I watched the five five mm. star mm. and some of those jumps like they terrify me but it's unbelievable the yeah that just the way that those horses can be going so fast and that rider just sits up and that horse will just come back just enough mm. to not come into a meter 40 freaking log and go catapulting over and mm. just the ability to read that situation and back off a little bit or push where you need mm. to to keep your boat safe and you've got to be so in sync to come home safely mm. and it's a really um you know, it's to me it's like such the Australian the Australian horse sport like we're so you know good at it I, that, I, mm. I feel like Australia that's our strongest yes you know? traditionally it has been and I think traditionally it was because we were a country of farmers mm. um, and maybe a country of convicts if you want to look at it that way too <laughs> so but, yeah you know horse hustlers get around but, wild but yeah like and now what is sad with the urbanization of our sport and perhaps a lack of coaching foundation we're losing that yeah. and we're becoming urbanized riders and I think one of the big challenges that I see with clients these days is not understanding that it's an animal. Mm. I cannot, it does not matter how much money you pay me or how much money you spend on that horse. I cannot possibly guarantee its behavior in X situation. What was the saying you told me before? Oh, it's a whip, not a wand, guys. <laughs> That's the best like, thing I've ever heard. You know? But I, that is so true. People have these unrealistic expectations that, but I, like you said, your horse you bought before was out of a, like a, a four star, oh, out, of, out of a great mare by a great useless. proven thing, and you paid $15,000 for it, but. You know, you and yourself went, all right, like it probably wasn't put together. And that horse just didn't have any talent. You're not going to go ring old mate that you bought it from and be like, how dare you just give me this untalented horse? Like, you gave him the money. You looked at it. You saw it. That's on you. And, you know. Old mate was Seamus Marwick, by the way. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, he should do. There's probably a reason he was selling it to oh, you, definitely. Yeah. He was like, this sucker coming through. He bought it as a two-year-old and Boyd, Boyd sold him the dream and he probably got off the track and thought, oh, I've been duped here. And then yeah. along comes you and, and I'm, I'm selling It was very money. quiet to give it its juice. Oh, well, at least, yeah. It had a job. Did, yeah, at least it didn't hurt you. But, but, you know, like that's so true. And it's like in the industry that I'm in as well, like you – and our industry is very um, – 
reading, mm. like very much on paper. Like you, you would buy something purely on paper. Like dressage, you can do, yeah. Dressage exactly. Do I feel like eventing is probably not as... It's easy. harder. It's much harder to predict breeding for eventing, which yeah. is why we have such a motley collection. I still love looking at Trot Up at a four star. And like, what is this Try and pick a common theme in these horses you no. can't. No, they're not. Like they're <laughs> such a... Unless that, you can x-ray their hearts. Well, you know, but, like... But that's that's what you what you base a good event in. Like to me, yeah. looking at like obviously there's going to be things that you would say you know they need to, oh, you they know, need to have to be good sh- feet and be uphill is helpful and there's things. But there's, for sure. I'm sure there's ones that have had shit feet downhill, Absolutely. biggest heart in the world, and would yep. you would you Chris's know five star horse, perfect example. You know, fifteen three in front, sixteen one behind. Yeah, could show up a meter fifty, like big heart though. Could not trot. Had ca- pony size cannon bones. You know, it's can just had short cannon bones. If yeah. its cannon bones were the right size, it would have been all correct. <laughs> you know, so yeah, so yeah, I agree with you. You can buy a horse off breeding, and um, and and you just end up obsessed with that, and it's mm. not, it's not a true guarantee. Just it's no guarantee of anything. And so when you're looking for like a horse as a prospect, obviously you're gonna like look at those things or like confirmation or things. But what um, like what other like. Probably more like personality traits you mm. look for when you, you get on a horse. You know, sometimes you just get on one and you're like, this gives me a good feeling. There's something mm. about this horse that just gives me that feeling. I think it's tricky. Like when I rode Giovanni Giorgio, who's my three-star horse at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and it's – well, it will be the most talented horse I've ever had, I reckon. Yeah. Um, I rode it at the McMaster's. Is that like the McDonald's Masters? Or? The McMaster's <laughs> up in Yeroa, okay. uh, who are some re- retrainers up there. Yeah. They're a lovely family. Um and they knew it was a good horse. But at the same time, it couldn't canter a circle. Like, it couldn't maintain a canter on a circle. Yeah. Um, he was, I don't know, he was maybe four months off the track and, like, he'd had a spell and Sam had done a few weeks with him. Um, he couldn't canter on a circle. He doesn't have the greatest trot. Anyone who's seen him often, people say, oh, he trots like a warm blood. He's learnt to trot like a warm blood. <laughs> he trots yeah. fine. He's, yeah. it's, it's mechanically fundamentally correct. It, there's yeah. a moment of suspension. It's a one-two beat. Um He's mechanically well put together. You know, like, it, there was enough there that I was like, I can teach this horse to trot. Yeah. It's not going to wow me trotting around the arena, yeah. but it's got enough foundation I can teach it to trot. And that's what separates, we often say, the good the good from the great. Can you make a horse better than it is? Mm. It's great if you've got a good horse and it continues to be a good horse. That's good, it? but can you make it a great horse? Yeah. And can you make an average horse and a very good horse? And probably one of the riders in this country that's best at that is Megan. Megan Jones can make an average horse very, very good. Yep. Um, and, and that's an, a real skill, especially for eventers, because they, they're they going to be bad at something. Mm. They can't be good at all three phases, so yep. you've got to be able to make the worst phase better than it is. So I looked at him on the flat and thought, I know that's my strength. I think I can produce it on the flat. Hopefully it learns to stay in canter on a circle one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> and then I trotted it to a fence. The best jumping horses I've ever bought, I've bought them off a trot and pop. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just give you a feeling over a fence and it just came to the fence, trot, trot, trot in the air. Yeah. And I went, yeah, I'll take it. But I could, I could trot them over. Maybe I want to jump it three times. Just, yeah. you know, the first time it might Quite be spooky or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But even if it's a fluke, if they can do it once it's in there, they can do it. Then you've got to work out how to make them do it more. Yeah. But you can't teach even the fluke, you know, like the fluke, some of them just have no talent and the fluke doesn't exist. It's not oh, in there. Yeah, right. So I don't, yes, I would love a horse to come round and jump 
the jump something 10 times and eight of it be the same or 10 of it be the same. But also if it comes around, if I'm looking at an off-the-track thoroughbred and it does it two out of 10 times, I'll take a risk on that. Mm. Just it has to it's there. do it. it. Is there it's there. there. Yeah. I've got to find it. And oftentimes it's you're not getting it 10 out of times because it can't trot in a straight line. It's running at the fence. It's got no mouth. It's looking at the sky. It, it actually physically can't jump the fence properly because mm. its body is so disco- uncoordinated yeah. on approach because of the because it's been running around galloping in a circle for however long that, you know, so it only has to do it once. Mm. Um, confirmation's huge. Like, even though he was a fairly inexpensive off-the-track thoroughbred type, I still had a full vet check done on him. Yeah. Because for us too, like, we don't buy anything we don't think is good enough to go all the way. Yeah. And the reality is if it's not good enough to go all the way, it will have gone some way and it'll have a job. Yeah. Um, and if they're unsound, trying to move them I can't do that. anything with a lame horse, yeah. you know, like, so they have to be sound and really we're going to be selling them for proper money. Mm-hmm. And the number of times I know people have bought one off the track, got it to three or four star, gone to sell it to overseas for a lot of money and it's got knee chips. Yeah. Could have had them since it was two. Mm. You never took an x-ray, so you don't know. Yeah. So not that I want perfect x-rays, but I want to know what I'm buying yeah. because it, it, it tells me how much effort I put in and that's a purely commercial decision. Yeah. If I've got a working student, that might be less of a problem for them. Yeah. You know, if it's your one horse and it doesn't really matter, fine, but for us, everything's got to we have to consider commercial return on every horse. Yeah. So, um, so, so always a full bedding. Um, we're very good at assessing confirmation. Other than x-rays and heart, x-rays, heart, eyes, we can pretty much bet them ourselves these yeah. days. Like I can flex one up, I can trot one up, I can, yeah. you know... I yeah, can, you sat through I enough can, of them, you know yeah, what you're looking I can do for. Yeah, I can do a neural assessment, you yeah. know, especially running rehab. Like we have great lameness eyes, both of us. Um, I can check feet, you know, all yeah. that stuff. So... Um, so yeah, we have a really, really good look at how sound they're going to stay. And then you just have to like them. And we talk about that a lot, looking at horses for people. Like we'll often have students come to us with, they're looking for horses and they bring a horse to us and we'll go look at it for them. And Chris and I will be like, Oh, really into this thing. And for whatever reason, they love it. And we will say to them, look, you know, here's our assessment of the horse. Um, it needs to vet. That's the vet's choice yeah. when they're buying it. That's nothing to do. I'll, I might say it's got crappy feet or whatever, but yeah. you vet it, work that out. And I'll say, okay, look, I've been brought in as a professional to assess this horse for suitability for you. I don't like these things about it. Mm-hmm. And as a horse, it doesn't wow me. Yeah. But you know what? Often, like if, if there's no reason it can't do the job for them, yeah. we will. I will cut blanche say, this horse doesn't really float my boat. But you know what? There's no reason it can't do the job you want yeah, it to you do. Like it. So yeah. if you like this horse, great. But but answer me this, right? It's raining. It's seven thirty at night. You've been at school or at work. You've been studying. It's dark. It's cold, and you've got to get there and get out of your car and go and ride that horse. You have to like it enough that you're prepared to get on it yeah. when all the chips are down and it's the sort of worst situation ever. And you're tired. And you don't. Do you like it enough to get on it? on that day yeah. and if you think you like it that much buy the horse mm. because if you don't believe in it and you don't like it you're no, not going to no. get anywhere no and no one else is going to yeah do it for no you, one's going to so. believe in it for you no. and i can tell a student it's the best horse in the world if they don't get on with it or they don't like it we get that all the time yeah 80 percent of the horses that come through for sale they just don't get on with the person and they're, they're not, just not yeah. the right match yeah. for whatever reason there's actually nothing fundamentally wrong yeah they're just not right for each other. But that's a, like I think people have this really misconstrued conception that if a horse is like not right for someone, mm. that there's something wrong, wrong with it. it. And it's like it doesn't. Like I, I used to sell a lot of horses for mm. people, and the amount of times where I'd have a horse come and you'd ride it for a bit and be like, well, like it, I, like I mm. got along with them all, and I'd be like, oh, I don't really 
know what your problem is and and i had a structure really you know solid way of finding the right mm. horse for people and it made such a difference but there was this kind of like connotation on these horses that like oh there must be something wrong mm. with them because you're selling them for someone's like well it just didn't work out. And why has it gone to a professional to sell? Well, that's our job. It, it, we're going to give you a more... And it was like this thing like where I was like a dodgy horse dealer. Yeah. Like, something dodgy. Like no. all I'm doing and I'm giving the information that I've been provided and my honest opinion of me working with the horse, mm. it's probably a lot safer option than buying it privately from someone that is only, you know, like you just don't never know what someone else's capability levels mm. are. So buying a horse out of a professional stable, in my opinion, is a far safer option. Mm. On one side, you're only getting that, like the, the seller only has the information that mm. the owner's given them. Um, but, you know, it's, um, yeah. It's like always it's, true though. Yeah. And <laughs> also like, I don't know why people think that people would misrepresent horses. Like we have to sell again and again and again. Mm. You sell one horse and you want to misrepresent it. Yeah. Okay. What of it? You're trying to do it every day of the week. Like, you people be. are not going to come back if the horses that you're selling aren't true to form. No. It's that simple. But I like horses. You like horses. I don't want to sell a horse. I don't. I would never want to misrepresent a horse no. and it end up somewhere bad. Absolutely. And then be sold on again. Because or God forbid hurt somebody exactly. because it's the wrong match. Yeah. Like, no way. It's not, I don't know why people think that that's someone's goal. goal. Mm. It's um, And, like, look, I'm sure there's people out there that just do it for a quick buck, but... You know, you look at the operation that you guys run here. It's a here long it's, game. Yeah, exactly. This sport is a long game in, oh. in every capacity. Yeah. You know, you can't produce a horse overnight. You can't hurry a horse. You can't generate a business and have a good reputation if you're not doing mm. the best you can all the time. We all make mistakes. Sometimes mm. things go wrong. Sometimes information is misconstrued. Like there's always going to be situations and you have to navigate that as part of being a professional. But at this, and, and in any industry, no matter mm. what you do, you yeah. know, Lawyers get sued. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's gonna... what happens. Like, unfortunately, we 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 are imperfect, and also sometimes people, you know, have expectations that you can't meet or are unrealistic, mm. or maybe you know, maybe you learnt something through that experience too, and yeah. and that's helpful as well. But um, but at the end of the day, I think you we always try and do what's best for the horses and put them first mm. and put their needs first, and that's a really big thing and. It's so, it's so important and I, it's another thing I, with my staff, I, my good staff, my, all my staff are good. My great staff, they care about the horses. Mm. And honestly, if someone doesn't really care about the horses, I want them gone. Yeah. If you can leave rugs on them on a hot day, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Don't yeah. work in this industry. It's not. Yeah. It's not Not in you. my, not you, in my life. You have to care. Yeah. You have to not get to 5.30 and think, oh, I'm just going to go home now. Mm. Where, you know, I've got a horse that hasn't got enough hay or I haven't checked waters or, you know, if you're going home and that's more important than checking the horse's basic needs are met, this is not the job for you. Mm. Um, like I have a horse, my four-star horse has got a lot of allergies and she's quite tricky to manage so she comes inside during the day. I, you know, my, I have staff who... She can go out at three o'clock. In theory, she goes out at three because she goes out and something else comes into the yeah. stable. So that makes good common sense, right? But on a really hot day or a really bad fly day, because it's actually flies she's allergic to, my best staff will do everything else, feed her inside and put her out in the very last part of their day. Yeah. Because they, they want her to have two more hours where she's not out being harassed by the flies. I can't teach people to do that. Yeah. That's horsemanship. Yeah. That's horse sense. That's caring about the animal. Mm. It's not good enough to just care about your job. You have to care about the animals yeah. in your care. And if you don't, do something else with your life. Like, And it's hard. Like running a business staff, you guys, you know, have had a lot of great staff mm. through here. But tell me about like that, um, managing that. I, 
everyone always says staff is the hardest part of any business, mm. but you can't, you know, if you look after your staff well, your business will run well. So mm. what sort of um, things have you encountered, you know, in your time doing this? Yeah, look, my, my, throw anyone under my the staff bus, are mostly just, incredible. And, yeah. and honestly, like if they're, we have a very strong culture of train, don't blame. Yeah. So if something's happened, why? You, you won't get yelled at the first time. You might get yelled at the second time. Yeah. The only thing you really get ripped a new one for is if you do something that's unsafe. Yeah. Like I, I will not have people being unsafe. And touch wood, we have an incredibly good safety record. Yeah. And it's because also every horse is trained. So mm. the minute you put a head stall on a horse, it's learning. Whether yeah. you want it to or not, that's great. You can't say to that horse, oh, no, just ignore what I do today. Mm. Horses do not work like that. So every staff member has groundwork training as part of their foundation of training and every horse, the minute it has a head stall on, there are rules that apply. Yeah. Um, and as a result, we have very few accidents. Yeah. Um, horses, you have accidents. Yeah, they're horses, horses right? Happens. Like they do. I mean, horses continue to this day to do things that you couldn't make it up. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know, the situations they get themselves into are just unfathomable. Yeah. So that's horses. But the more you can control that interaction and, and settle that, the better. So I think for us, train, don't blame. We actually have a whole induction process with our staff. Everyone that's here is trained. We never tell someone something without, there's always a reason we do something. So yeah. for instance, like, pardon me, the first thing the staff do when they get here in the morning is give the inside horses hay because mm -hmm. they've been without hay since I did night checks at nine, 10 o'clock. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. I never just say to staff, that's why. They get a picture drawn on the board about how a horse's stomach works and why roughage is important and what the risks, how many hours. All my staff can tell you what the temperature of a horse should be, how many hours they can go without roughage before they get stomach ulcers. Um, what else? I don't know. An, an infinite number of things. You yeah. know, we actually teach them about the horse, yeah. not just tell them how to do their job. Yeah, but that's so that's so important and this thing we're talking about sort of lacking in this, you know, teaching mm. these people these good foundations. And it's great to hear that you guys are still doing that because you have such a passionate vested interest in the horse's well-being mm. that these young riders that are coming through are getting that knowledge. So that's, you know, keep doing it. That's such a cool, and cool why thing. why we feed them like we do, you yeah. know. Why is it so important you get their supplements, right? Yeah. All that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, we're really, really big on that. And then for our working students, it's also, well, why do we feed them the way we do? Good, well, you know that and you know it's best practice. Mm -hmm. Also, what do you think it costs us to feed them all every year, you know? And, and let's think <laughs> about, that. about that. So <laughs> when, I get, when I get after you because you've left hay in the machine or you've left feed in the bottom of the bucket, mm -hmm. that's dollars and cents. Yeah. So, you know, one, the horse should have got that whole ration because that's what it was designed for. Yeah. But also, you just cost me money. Yeah. And now you have to scrub it out of the bucket, so that's even more rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a funny thing, you know, when you have staff as well with that, you know, how much it costs to run these things. And there's no, I think, you know, as a young person, you don't really have a concept of how, you know, how the money works. Like, mm. And I, you know, I used to work for a guy and he used to always say like, oh, you've got your blinkers on. Like you're not, you know, no one ever treats it like, you know, like their own. And I know I didn't grasp that until I had my own. And then <laughs> I, I'd have these kids come through and I was like freaking Hitler. I was like. You drop that bucket of feet. I'm like, you want to go scrape it up? I'm like, go pick the rocks out, put it back in the bucket. You know, because <laughs> me, I was looking at it like dollars and cents. And it was like, you know, that feed that you like dropped all over the ground there, like that's, you know, that's X amount of dollars. And, you know, I've got to well, do the this machine to make you just drove off with a flat tyre oh, and now you've ruined the wheel. Yeah. The, when you backed my car into the side of the shed, put a big dent in it and no yeah. one told me. You know, all these all fun stories. I must have bought 25 pot plants for the treadmill end. 
Yeah, right. I feel. I think that sometimes I think that my young staff see them and aim for them. You know, just <laughs> punch them out, take a little <laughs> bit of rage out on the pot plants. Yeah, so. part of me is like maybe I should just give up on the pot plants, but they look so nice. Yeah, no, keep, keep <laughs> the pot plants. So that's you know you guys, um, you know, had heaps of really cool stuff come through here, but you've also had some really cool horses, and mm. you've been talking about your plans to head overseas and the yeah. plan was one horse but it sounds like you're taking more than one oh. so who are we as usual <laughs> nothing like taking a few extras we're just not good at doing things in halves no 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 i wouldn't yeah but you wouldn't be you guys if you well did this that, is so. the thing you yeah. know i've so, got to accept that so what are the horses that you're taking and um are they all your horses have you got yeah, any client well, horses or no no true clients horses um a couple of them are syndicated and some of them are in the process of being syndicated yeah um and that's going to be really critical to our ability to do take this next step yeah um and that takes years and years to kind of that's an area we're still quite green in, I guess, ourselves. Yep. Um, we've always been big on owning our own horses because we're slow to produce them and we want everything done right. And yep. if you have someone on the end of the checkbook who's a ribbon chaser, that can get very tricky. Yep. Um, and also we want to maintain control. We're investing a lot of our own time and money in these horses. And if someone else owns most of them and you lose the ride, that I've seen that happen to one too mm. many riders and it's very tricky. Mm. So we're at a point in our career now where we have to, we cannot continue to fund it ourselves. We need external support. Yeah. And we've been very careful about how we set that up and who we've got involved. And, yeah. you know, um, just because someone's willing to pay doesn't mean you want to work with them. Yeah. So, you know, oh, they're very much part of our team. Yeah. Um, and they, and they have to be like that and they can be part of our team in whatever capacity they want. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've got some ground rules around that. So anyway, so, you know, so we're partly syndicating them. So I'm sort of hoping they'll all arrive in Europe with about a 50% ownership on mm -hmm. them, you know, give or take. Um, some of them more than others. Um, some of them are more expensive to run than others. So that yeah. has a bit of an impact too. So the idea at the moment, um, or the, uh, the plan is, um, we are leaving at the end of September mm -hmm. and we'll arrive and take one horse... Originally, we were going to take Giovanni to um, Bukalo in mm -hmm. the Netherlands to do his first fall long, but he's a little bit behind where we wanted him to be, and he's also very noise-sensitive as a horse, mm -hmm. um, but very crowd-sensitive. Um, and Bukalo is sponsored by a beer company. Oh, good. So, uh, rowdy bar. Really rowdy, and every jump has a beer tent. So there's no reprieve from the crowd. And I'd the like crowd to come to the Netherlands and go to this wild. event. <laughs> Deal. It's like the wildest show in Europe. Yeah. So uh, while the timing is good, I don't think it's the right show for the horse. Yeah. So it's one of the few shows we're going to that we actually have never spectated at. So um, suffice it, I would like to. Suffice mm. to say, though, I don't think that's where he'll go. So we're, we're still kind of coming up with a bit of another plan for him. Yeah. Uh, my mare is aimed at the five-star at Poe, yep. uh, in Poe in France. Chris's... Horse Lucky Contender is aimed for Lurleon for the young horse class. Mm -hmm. He'll do the seven and eight year old. Yep. It's a big, I can't get, I keep getting that wrong because he, he ages up when he goes to Europe because of the birth dates because he's mm -hmm. a northern, southern yep. hemisphere horse. Yep. So anyway, so he's doing a young horse class at Lurleon. And um, then I think the other two, will, so Giovanni and another one we've got called uh, Bel Air Cadillac, mm -hmm. will go to Montalabresi in Italy. Um, and horses get delayed jet lag. So they don't get jet lag like we do when they first hit the ground. They get it like four to eight weeks later. Yeah, right. Um, and what tends to happen is they lose their coat because they've gone into the wrong season. Mm -hmm. So they really rapidly change their coat. Um, and that often leads to them going off their food. They can get a bit anemic um, and they just get a bit flat and rubbish. And then it can take them anywhere from a month to three months to kind of reset and get yeah, right. organized three months is pretty unusual yeah. if you if you're sort of managing them well and you're onto it but but it can happen so 
it seems a bit odd that we're going coming into winter, but the idea is that they'll land and go to a show. Yeah. Um, so their prep will be done here. They'll have their own vets, their own barriers. They'll land on the ground and mm-hmm. they'll go to their shows and then they'll winter. Um, and then that means that they come out at the start of the next season ready to do a whole British a whole British event. Like so British when you take them event. over there, are you taking them over there, competing them, coming back, leaving no, them there? No, we leave them there. So the plan but for you'll, us But you'll leave them there, but you'll come back? I uh, don't know. The plan is to go for five years at this point. Mm-hmm. So um, I suspect we'll come back for our first Christmas. Um, it just depends on where we end up leaving them. Yeah. So I think we're going to try and leave them maybe in Italy. Yeah. It's just that little bit warmer than the UK. Um, and also... My mare is then aimed for badminton at the start of next year. So the badminton horses, because it's very early in the season, they have to start running very early. Mm-hmm. And what you tend to find, the, the rule of thumb is if you enter the first four shows on the British calendar, three of them won't run because of the weather. Yeah. So um, a lot of the Brits actually go to, to Europe to mm-hmm. start their season, to get away from the To make sure they get a run. Yeah. yeah. So, and some of them go down to Italy to Mont and there's also some show jumping shows. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, actually, it would make sense for us to remain in Italy, winter them there and start in Italy. Yeah. And then and then go to England. Um, and so we'll sort of arrive in England, I think, six or eight weeks before badminton and then do her final prep yep. for badminton with Sam Griffiths, I'm hoping, um, yep. will have us. Um, he's someone we've known for a long time. He's stayed with us. He's coached us. He's yep. a, a great guy I have a lot of time for. Um, he's also expert at getting people organised into the UK system because it's very different. Yeah. Um, very, very different with entering shows, going to shows, getting around the country, mm. Um fitness prep like he's he's i mean he's won badminton um like he's got they've got the fitness prep for badminton down pat yeah he would have it it'd be great having an australian over there that you know they know exactly what you're going through and how to get the horses and and yeah having someone you know in your your corner absolutely make a massive difference and the longer i do this sport the more important we realize it is to have someone in your corner and just and how that actually looks yeah it's it's not it's not good enough that they're just like yeah go you that's it's not about that and it's a lot more that now. reminds me i shared a thing on facebook a couple of months ago that you actually reposted on your <laughs> on your page but it, uh, that reminds me of that as you know competition happens at the oh. bottom they're collaborating at the top and yep. that's so true that you know in lower levels of things you if you were coming from another country with someone that could potentially be or like someone mm. was coming in that could potentially be a threat, you know, be a threat you know lower level people will be like no, you're in my spot get out of the way i'm mm. not going to help you whereas at the top it's like you want people to come in and succeed. You want the industry to grow. You want all these, mm. you know, and that's like just a testament to that. So mm, absolutely, so. it's a it's a shame we've lost him to New Zealand as their coach actually. Which, you know, it's a mm. bit of a, a loss to us, but anyway. So yeah, and then um, I want to do a, a post grad course at Hartbury Uni from the September. So we'll move up to Cheltenham and hopefully Lisa Barn, and then kind mm-hmm. of set up some sort of a business. So yeah, but we've sort of got twelve months of comp plans but no yeah. other plans and probably working at the pub in the middle <laughs> bit of hustle you're going a lot back of hustling. Full I think circle, there's gonna it? have to be a lot of hustling no science is he going back to the science no i'm going to the science <laughs> and i'm he's hoping he's learnt one or two things about running a business so oh, you know that's unreal so that's really that's such a cool you know to think of the kid that started mm. bush riding up in, in mansfield you know at the base of mount buller to to you know aspirations of and now you're actually making this a reality and we were talking earlier about, you know, sometimes like, you know, waiting for the right time and Ugh. sometimes you just go, what, like, when is the right time? What am I waiting for? What am I wa- exactly. What am I waiting for? Why am I going to put it off for another year or another year or mm. when I've got more money in the bank or when I've got this? It's uh, one of those things, you know, we're only, you know, our time on earth is not guaranteed and take the chances, do the things. And you guys are, are like 
you're doing that. And I have mm. such such respect for what you you're doing, and think it makes me just go. You know what? Like, pull your finger out. Pull my finger <laughs> out. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna fucking you know take. All, I'm not gonna take my horse to the states because they'd be like, what is this peasant pony brought here? <laughs> but like to to sort of aspire Would to go. They? Oh yeah, we suck. <laughs> <laughs> compared to what they're doing over there. We're like 25 years behind the mark. So, um, but, you know, to go over and ride internationally is something that I'd love to do as well. Mm. And, um, yeah, I keep thinking, oh, I'm not, you know, definitely not at that stage yet, but I'm like, wow. But you I don't know you yourself... get to that stage. This is the thing. Exactly. This is it. Like, when is the right time? Mm. And I'm like, you know, you know, sit with millionaires, you're with the next millionaire. Like, mm. And that's what I think if you put yourself in those situations. And that's exactly what you are doing. We were talking before about... You know, here in Australia, I love Australia and I, mm, I love living here. Same. And I think we it's never amazing. wanted to leave. I don't want to live in England. No. I don't want, I, I want to live here, but I can't do what I want to do here. When you get to that level, mm. like you said, each year you might get 2% better, but you want to get 20% better mm. and you've got to surround yourself with those people that are, have the abilities to take you to that next level and, and that's and push you. Uh, yeah, and, and, and push you and, and make you, you know, want to be at, at their level mm. and, and support you as well. And being in a community that's mm. going to, you know, help help you rise to the top but um before we wrap things up just you guys started like you said you're 37 37 but in the scheme of things like super young do you know have done what you've done but looking back you know 10 years ago mm. what advice would you have given yourself like if you could go back to yourself right now and go listen here you need to do okay. this. I, I had to choose between Mornington and Yarra Valley. Oh, and I decided that I was being a princess and I was just going to bite the bullet and move to the Yarra Valley. Mm. It's cold and wet. <laughs> you should have stayed in Mornington. <laughs> <laughs> so you shouldn't have given in to That's the valley. That's rubbish advice. Mm. No. Um, what advice would I have given myself? Or even like a young, Be, like a young yeah, trainer. Yeah, I think... Um, it's really important to be able to ride lots of different kinds of horses and kind of to be able to ride not every horse, but, you know, 80% of them, that's important. But you need to choose horses that suit you mm -hmm. and be more prepared to... I've always been good at firing them when they're not good enough, but I've not been good enough at choosing horses that suit me. Mm. And they don't always look the way you think they're going to. And, like, my mare's a great example of that. I don't... If she was the only horse I rode every day, I would go crazy. Like, she's not an enjoyable person to work with on a day-to-day -day level. <laughs> yeah. But she is my rowing partner to go to an Olympics on. Do you know, like, yeah. she, I mean, she's not going to an Olympics. But, you know, um, she, she's, she's a great person for me to run my business with or yeah. play doubles tennis with or, you know, like, no, she's not my, my life partner. But she's, but she's reliable. She is the person that brings yeah. out the best in me yeah. in the sport, right? So, and my weaknesses are her strengths, and mm -hmm. well, they're not really. But anyway, um, whatever, for whatever about reason, a horse here, yeah, yeah. But for whatever reason, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, she, I mesh with her and yeah. I work well with her. And from the minute I got on her, I was like, oh, this is gonna be hard work. But you know what? I know I can, I can work with this. Yeah. And that's really important. And the same with, I just, I, I for a while, I chose horses that were really talented. Mm -hmm. And I had three or four in a row that were super talented and they just didn't work out for me. And my riding went backwards because they didn't suit me. Yeah, so right. I, I did the right thing and I was like, my horses have got to be better. And I chose better horses, mm -hmm. but they weren't better for me. And now I've got better at picking horses that suit me. Mm. And so I think if I could go back and give myself competitive advice, that would be it. Yeah. You know, like, um, and now the, the problem with that is that takes learning. So could could I have done that ten years ago? Probably yeah. not. I had to go through that to realize that. To now know that, you know, yeah. and I think that's where that that 
um, that looking back advice is always really yeah. hard. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that's a big thing though. Like it's really, and I say this with the working students, it, it's, it goes back to that, do you love this horse? Mm. And if you do, you'll find a way to ride it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you've got to be able to work with it. And it's not a failure to give up on a horse that could do it but can't do it with you. Yeah. That's why Chris and I swap horses all the time. Mm. You know, like the one he's, um, uh, Bel Air Cadillac that he's got, it's, it is one of the most talented horses in the country. It's mm. unbelievable. It came to me to sell as a dressage horse and he couldn't fix it as a dressage horse and he said, no, nah, I can't do this, you have to have a go. And I got on it and got a tune out of it and fixed, did most of the major fixing and then couldn't find a dressage home for it because it's quite naughty. And so we jumped it and he watched it free jump and he's like, give me another go. <laughs> get him on. And I was back. like, just get rid of it. Because he's like, why don't you, you know, take it jumping. I, I'm like, it's 17 plus. It is enormous. I said to him, there is no way. 10 years ago, I would have given it a go. Not no now. way. I wouldn't. It would scare me. Yeah. Through no fault of its own, it is too much horse for me. Yeah. And yet my mare is 16.3 and probably weighs more than him. Yeah. Like, but... I, I, she, you know. she doesn't feel like too much horse yeah. to me. Like I can, I can manage it. I knew straight away that it was too much horse for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Chris has got on it and, you know, I've made an inroad for him and he's just absolutely kicked goals with it. Yeah. And it's been, it's going to be an amazing horse for him in his career. And it's earned itself a plane ticket. Like yeah, right. it's an incredible cool, horse, it? but you know, it's a horse that's not for me. And do I ever look at it? And it, it is so fancy. Like people stop and stare at it. It's mm. so amazing. And do I ever look at him on it and regret that I gave him the ride? Never for a single second. But because 10 years ago, would you have that, maybe, you reckon? Yeah, yeah, and I would have been more competitive with yeah. him. And I would have been like, no, it's talented, I want it. Yeah. And now I'm like, no, nah, not for all the tea in China. You know, am I super excited for him? Absolutely. Yeah. Do I regret not, not keeping the ride on it? Not for a single second because I know that I would never have got it to go like he's going. Yeah. And but he also wasn't going to get it to where it was at no. without that so help he's, from you. It's so been it's been a bit of a team a cool, effort of a horse. Yeah. yeah. But that's a maturity thing to be able to work yeah. like that together. And like we talked about before, working <laughs> with your partner is probably, yeah, like not, not easy. easy. But but you think of, you know, probably the the strengths in your relationship now because you've endured that. It is like working with a, a horse that you a get on a, horse a difficult horse. Yes. <laughs> and, and you have to do all the work yourself. You can't palm it off on someone else. But, you know, you've you've come to that point now where you, you know, you can do that and you mm. can be happy for, for him mm. with his successes and he can be just as happy for you with your successes, mm. which is really important because I think it could be really detrimental to your, oh. your, uh, your mental health yeah. having someone that wasn't supportive like that. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, I think... In this sport, you're your biggest competitor. Yeah. And as soon as you start looking left and right, mm -hmm. you're in trouble and you're taking your eye off the ball. Yeah. That, it, you, you can't control what anyone else does. Stay in your lane. That is very good advice. And that that in itself is... I think people need to remember that. It's mm. so easy to look at what other people around you are doing and focus on, you know, oh, so-and-so's got the fancy truck mm. or the horse or this. And exactly what you said, like, keep your eye on the game, worry about what you're doing. It's not a measure. Yeah. Exactly. You know, your measure is your dressage score, the rails you left up, the speed you did. Put a score on the board, don't worry about. You know, and in. if you just keep your eye on the measure, you come out on top. Yeah. Eventually, if, you know. <laughs> sometimes. Maybe, you sometimes. Come back around. Like, I didn't win a rug. I hadn't ever won a rug until G won a rug. He won the four-year-old young horse. Mm. And then... I know that was all good and well, but it's a bit of a show. Like, it's not a show class, but, you know, it's a, it's a subjective class. Yeah. 
And then last year, in the first six months of last year, so I started Adelaide won a three-star long spring summer horse trials. I'd never won a rug, let alone a long, a long mm. like a three-day event. You had a good run. My score was so good, it put me on a high-performance team, yeah. like squad. And I continued through that season. G then went on and won three rugs, mm. two of them at international shows, one best performed off the track in June. Yeah. Literally, I promise you, I had never won a rug before that. Like... It is the weirdest sport. I can remember Clayton saying to me when I was in Europe all that time ago that he, because he rode at four star before he went to Europe, mm-hmm. and until he got Ben a long time, who he went to the Wagon and was like the horse of his career, he'd never won a rug until he got Ben. Yeah, right. And I was like, I remember thinking, oh, that, that's just like, Whatever. that's a bit now you win a, like, now, now you He win probably a rug. won a pony club rug, you know, yeah. literally, like, <laughs> I'd never won a rug. And now I'm like, Got all these. But what do I do with all these rugs? I know, <laughs> but a meaningful rug though, like isn't it, you know? Yeah, it's... but it's been, you know, like for so many years I've been like, oh, you know, I wonder how it feels to win. I've never been a winner. And it was a running joke with Chris and I. Like he's like, oh, you know, you could win this weekend. And I was like, no, Chris, I don't win. Like I'm not a winner. <laughs> you know, he's a very, very good competitive athlete. Yeah. I'm a great – we're both great horse people, but he's a much better athlete mentally than I am. Yeah. Not a great competitor. And, you know, I thought that I would win these rugs and I would feel something new. And like a sense of fulfilment because you yeah. won the rug. Did it happen? It doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. No. But, you th- but you look at the people with the rugs you and think, you think... It's not right. You know, mm-hmm. I get a much bigger sense of fulfilment when I get oh, a young horse around its first cross country or mm-hmm. I improve my dressage score by 3% or, yeah. you know, G went out and nailed his dressage test at Camperdown at the end of last year. He wasn't even supposed to go to Camperdown. Through his own stupidity, he went to Camperdown because <laughs> I gave him a week off and took him to a clinic and he was an idiot. And I was like, well, well you clearly on, don't coming. need a holiday. Yeah. So he had a little holiday and he went. And he just turned a corner on the flat and I thought, you're going to be six months off, like, really nailing this in the ring. You need strength and time and you need to solidify it. And that's fine, but I'm glad you're getting it. And it just turned up and it went, I've got this. And I, I trotted around before the test and they were running a bit late. It was really hot. And I thought, I'm going to lose. Like, he's going to run out of wolf. And he went in and I had to kick him around the last few minutes while I'm going. <laughs> and he put this test down and I thought, I think he did it then. I think, like, you know, I'm so happy. I was so happy with mm. it. And then when I got the score and he was winning, I was like, oh, wasn't that just the icing on the cake? But really what I was so happy with was that he managed to translate that into the ring in such a short space of time. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was with the sense of fulfilment. And then he backed it up by jumping double clear and finishing on my first ever sub-30 finishing score. Yeah. I wouldn't have cared if he got a 29 and came fifth. I was just so happy that he finished sub-30 and he went and did that test. And, you know, like the, but that's, that's the things give that you were that, the fulfilment were yeah. nothing to do with coming first. But that's but the difference between, uh, you know, a, a, call it like a, like a true horse person that you're – like I said, that long game is the longevity of the horses mm. and the training and all those things, not the rug, no. not the ribbon, not the, the garland. It's you know nice I mean? sometimes it, to have those things. Oh, but but it's, you know, it's I think um, as a competitor, you know, being, I heard a saying once, like, if you show me a good loser, you show me a loser, which I don't agree with that. No, like I, I not really, in horses. Not in horses. I think you've got to be losing is is part of it and mm. and it's not even losing it's it, you know at the end of the day it's a subjective only eventing. one person can win exactly and where you go play football 50 percent of the people that are playing the game win yeah yeah horses are not like that no. and like i dated a golfer at one point and <laughs> of course you did golf <laughs> only one person wins golf do you know how hard it is to win golf yeah. like because literally there's one winner yeah. like we go to an event there's eight classes if there's eight classes, that's a pretty big show. Yeah, but You're they're probably like talking 350 people well, yeah. at least. 
And you've got eight winners out yeah. of 350 people. Yeah. If you were all playing netball, 50% mm. of you would have won. Yeah. So it, it, you can't play to win. No. It's, it's, not, it's so hard to win. Um, you've got to play for consistency and training and there's got to be other goals. And, mm. I mean, if you're playing to win, you're not lasting long. Yeah, and that, again, comes back to that. Yeah. It's a long game and, and you, you really, you know, have got that plan. God, so. you have to split this podcast in two. <laughs> and we're supposed to make a cocktail. We're going to we? make a cocktail. Don't worry, we'll come back around to that. But I think we're I really... need a drink. We're, don't worry, we're, ready to have, <laughs> we're going to have a drink and then we're going to come back. But oh. um, I really appreciate you taking the time because... Like I said, I, this is not my realm of things, but I, I, oh, I re, well, you know, back in the day I had some jobbers, but it's, <laughs> I just respect you as a horse person, as a business person, oh. um, and as another woman in the industry. But right back at you. Oh, thank you. And I, I love that you've done all the different disciplines and one day I'm going to want to ride a Western horse again. Oh, mate, I'll bring him back. If oh. I need to put him on the walker thing, I'll, I'll bring him back. You can have a little lap around. <laughs> but, um, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, obviously wrapping things up now, heading yeah, to yeah. Europe. So if you haven't jumped on the wagon already, you've probably missed the boat, but Spring Creek down here in... In Coldstream, um, you know, rehab off the track. You do as a lot of off the track work mm. um, and training of horses. So you can get in touch with Sam or Chris on Facebook. But um, I think we'll wrap things up here Easy. now. And we can we go are on. here for six more months and I do still have to make money. And so okay, so yeah, so. everyone, bring your horses. <laughs> so please come on down. Please come, please come on down <laughs> with your horses. But I can, yeah, highly, highly recommend, you know, um, the fitness work on the Aqua Walk. It makes a massive difference um, if you're time poor. And you also offer adjustment services here. Yeah. So for the... All of it. For everything. All the things. All of the things. So if you, you want to get in touch... Don't hesitate to jump on the Facebook. But thanks so much, Sam, for joining me. And this has been another episode of the Cocktail Cowgirl Podcast. Thanks.